0: This is Audible. Writer's Audio Shop is pleased to present The Hero's Two Journeys, featuring Michael Haug and Christopher Vogler.
1: Making your story better is the subject of this original audio workshop. Two superstar teachers conduct a point-counterpoint discussion of what makes a great story tick, presenting their unique approaches to story structure Character arc, and how to give your story greater commercial appeal. Michael Haig is a Hollywood script consultant and screenwriter who coaches writers, filmmakers, and studio executives. His best selling book, Writing Screenplays That Sell, has become an industry standard. Christopher Vogler is a motion picture producer, a story consultant to major movie companies, and the author of the hugely successful book, The Writer's Journey mythic structure for writers. In this one-day event held in Los Angeles, each teacher first presents his approach to the outer journey, the essential structural principles driving every successful plot. Michael Haig's core belief is that any hero must pursue a visible goal with a known finish line. Christopher Vogler explains his 12-stage guide to the outer journey based on the myths and fairy tales that link us all. But that outer journey is not enough to make a story truly great. Storytellers also must create a second journey, an inner journey, for the hero. Michael sees this as moving from being defined by others to defining oneself. Chris thinks more in terms of an inner need that is invisible to the hero at first, but becomes visible to him or her by the end of the story. This seminar is packed with concrete examples from well-known movies, and features several question-and-answer sessions. Let's jump right into the morning session. Chris Vogler is introducing Michael Haig.
0: We're very, very pleased, Michael and I, to be here and uh, welcome all of you, and uh, to see a good turnout in Los Angeles where we thought everybody already knew everything. So, uh, you know, what can could, what could we teach you, possibly? But, We're both very excited to do this because it came out of work that uh, we both have been doing independently. Uh, Michael and I, I'm Chris Vogler, and uh, my uh, partner in this project, Michael Haig, and I, both are mainly known as story consultants. We are working all the time with writers and trying to bring out the... uh, the best in stories, trying to to help the writers achieve the most out of their stories. And when we began to compare notes and when we worked together in various venues, we discovered that we had certain concepts in common, and one of them that we both agreed about is that stories seem to divide into an outer journey and an inner journey. We have different terms for these things. I like to speak in the language of the metaphor of the journey. Uh, Michael has other ways of describing it, but really we were talking about the same thing. The fact that when you tell a story, there are at least these two levels. There's some kind of outer quest or adventure or uh, drive to achieve some physical objective, and then there is an inner journey. And we both agreed that the inner process was often the last thing that was thought about, or it wasn't completely thought out in uh, even some some feature films that get made, uh, and certainly in a lot of the scripts that we were reading. When I worked for Disney Animation, uh, and we were adapting fairy tales, this was often the situation. They would take the fairy tale, which is very skeletal and doesn't talk about character or inner growth or Uh, development of psychology very much at all, uh, and do a direct transcription, almost, of that fairy tale, and uh, do a good job of laying out the plot, uh, the outer activities and challenges and dangers and jeopardy that the hero had to go through, but did not do such a good job on those inner journeys. And it sort of came into my head when I was writing notes on one of these, and I think it was Aladdin, it just kind of came into my mind as a, as a statement. Every journey, every story, should have both an inner problem and an outer problem, an inner journey and an outer journey, and this element was not being addressed as, as well as it should be. So uh, I began thinking, and I see that Michael as well was independently thinking about these things, and when we put our heads together about what kind of seminar we might do in tandem, This was one of the things that we both felt was important to emphasize. So that's what we're gonna be talking about today, giving you in the first part of the day, uh, sort of a refresher on this outer journey that most people know fairly well, but we have some specific angles on it that we wanna share with you. And then in the later part of the day, getting into this uh, inner journey and uh, more of the psychological and emotional and spiritual aspects of storytelling. Uh, so I'd like to begin by introducing Michael. Michael is a colleague of mine for many years. Uh, we uh, met on the road, uh, on the circuit of going around lecturing, and uh, immediately had a sort of mutual respect. Uh, we also insult each other a lot, but uh, that's, uh, that's part of the entertainment. So uh, Michael has worked very closely with writers. He's known primarily for that. He's had a wide and varied career, has worked uh, with producers and uh, uh, in the studio system. But uh, I think he's best known as a a real friend to writers, someone who really wants to help them bring out the best in their work. And uh, that's how I know him and uh, appreciate him. So I'd like to introduce you to Michael Haig, and he's going to begin us on the uh, outer journey. So here he is, Michael Haig. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Well, Chris just gave you a good idea of what uh, the day is going to sort of generally be, you know, made up of. What I'd like to begin by doing is get a sense of who you are and what brought you here? and to do that very quickly I'm just going to name some reasons, some groups that you might fall into and find out which category applies to you so the first category would be how many of you are or are pursuing a career in screenwriting and this seems like a logical class to take for you, please raise your hand okay, almost everybody how many of you would regard yourselves as filmmakers outside of the screenwriting reader, directing, producing, acting, whatever, and that's your primary interest, is to apply these story principles to those pursuits. Okay, and we have some repeaters there, and that's fine. And how many of you are outside the film arena? Let's say you're novelists, playwrights, you work in other areas of storytelling or fiction writing, and you're here to learn these principles for those elements of writing. Raise your hand. Okay, good. What we're talking about today by and large applies to all forms of storytelling. And with that, I want to segue into what I believe to be the essential reason you're here and the essential foundation of all story. To me, no matter what kind of storyteller you are, whether you're a screenwriter or you're directing or producing a film or writing a novel, you have one primary objective. You are really here to learn only one thing and that is how to elicit emotion. People go to the movies, they read novels, they see plays, so they can feel something. Not simply so they can think. You can get them to think, but to get them to think, you have to get them to feel. And what we are going to be talking about And this is, in my opinion, Chris will contradict in anything that he disagrees with. But in my opinion, what we are here to teach you to do is to elicit emotion in the mass audience for your product. Now, when it comes to storytelling, my belief is that at their core, stories are very simple. And certainly Hollywood movies are very simple they are built on a foundation of only three elements. And that is character, desire, and conflict. Every good story is about a captivating or emotionally involving character who is pursuing some compelling desire and who faces seemingly insurmountable obstacles in achieving it. And that's it. In essence, if you've got those three things and they work, you got a good story. What we're here to show you how to do is make it work better. When it comes to Hollywood movies, all Hollywood movies must work on a visible level in those three areas. So for any Hollywood movie to work, there must be... the the element of character is what I term, or what we're both terming today, the hero. There must be a main character that we are rooting for, that we identify with. And that character is pursuing some visible desire and facing some visible obstacles. Now, that's a lot right there. Because it's not just enough to throw a character on the page or on the screen and say, here's my hero, run with this guy. You must create that necessary identification. Identification simply means empathy. It means that the audience or the reader becomes that character as they participate emotionally in the story. The reason Titanic made three kazillion dollars or whatever it made worldwide is not because it is interesting to watch a shipwreck. (laughs) It is because it is emotional to become a character who's in a shipwreck. We become Rose. We identify with her and we experience the emotion. We experience that story through her. We are Belle in Beauty and the Beast. We are Aladdin. We are Rose. We become that hero. And the way you create that identification very quickly is, number one, you make that character sympathetic. You get us to feel sorry for that character by making her the victim of some undeserved misfortune. So in a movie like... Um, Titanic, for example, part of our identification is we just feel sorry for her because she's trapped with this jerky multimillionaire that she feels sort of obligated to marry and she can't kind of escape. The next way you create identification, or an additional way, is you put that character in jeopardy because we identify with people we worry about. Well, as soon as you see her get on board the Titanic, we know what's going to happen to that ship. She's in danger. Now, it doesn't have to be physical danger. It could be danger of loss of anything of vital importance to that character. So, for example, he's about to lose his business in Rain Man because the EPA is holding up those cars. Or in Working Girl, she could lose her job. Another way you create identification is to make your character likable. A kind, good-hearted person. Someone we care about. Someone who is well-liked by other people in the movie. Almost any Tom Hanks movie uses that device. His career is built on playing those kinds of characters. We just basically like them. Another way to create identification is to, to make the character funny because we like to hang out with people who make us laugh and we like to become people who have the courage to say funny things that we may not have the courage to say. And finally, another means of identification is to make the character powerful, very good at what they do. Could be a superhero, could be an Arnold Schwarzenegger-type character, an Indiana Jones-type, or it could simply be someone like uh, the character in Rain Man is so slick, so good at, at spinning all those plates and rescuing his business from falling apart that we are attracted to that. A very skilled lawyer, a very skilled computer geek in war games, something like that. So you must employ at least two or more of those five elements when you introduce your character. The next thing, that hero must pursue some visible goal. This is the foundation of basically my entire career. If there's one core element to everything I've written about, talked about, and coached about, it's that the foundation of a Hollywood movie is a hero pursuing a visible goal that has a finish line that we can imagine. So in Titanic, it's really not a story about surviving a shipwreck. That's an obstacle. It's about getting to America and winning the love of Jack. Or in the movie The Truman Show, it's about escaping. Or in Gladiator, it's about killing the emperor who murdered his family. So, you must have a visible goal with that clearly defined endpoint. And then, in pursuing that goal, there must be insurmountable or seemingly insurmountable obstacles. If it doesn't seem impossible for your hero to get what they want, we don't care. That's why you don't see many movies about somebody whose goal is to drive to work. (laughs) Now, you could. You could do that only if you could build a whole movie, in fact, there probably has been one, about all the obstacles someone encountered as they tried to drive to work. But unless they encounter bombs and kidnappers and and, uh, uh, mysterious women who may or may not be trying to kill them, it's not going to be an interesting movie. It must seem impossible. That's why the movie is called Titanic, you know, and, and it, you notice they didn't make the Queen Mary because that, that ship didn't sink, you know. It's just dry dock there, you know, nothing exciting about that. And the reason you must have that conflict is because remember your primary goal. It is to elicit emotion, and emotion grows out of conflict. It is the obstacles that we either anticipate or see the hero encounter that create the emotion of your story. The goal is necessary to drive the story forward and give us something to root for. So that, in a nutshell, is a lesson on the foundation of screenplays or story. Now, there is another level to everything I just said, however, It's what Chris referred to and what we're going to talk about this afternoon, which is the inner journey. The outer journey is what I consider a journey of achievement, of accomplishment. You want to go out there and get something. In fact, Hollywood movies are so basically simple, that does not mean easy, does not mean simplistic, although they could be, but they're so basically simple at their core that they're really only about four goals that the heroes of movies pursue they either want to win, or escape, or stop, or retrieve. In other words, they want to win a competition, Rocky, Karate Kid, Chariots of Fire. Or they want to win the love of another character in any romantic comedy or love story. Or they want to stop some bad thing from happening a meteor from hitting the earth, or Buffalo Bill from killing that woman in Silence of the Lambs. Or they want to retrieve something, they want to go out and get something and bring it back, a holy grail, a buried treasure, a bank robbery, Raiders of the Lost Ark, would be that kind of film. Or they want to escape, you know, the Truman Show, The Great Escape, whatever. They want to get out of some situation. Someone is pursuing them, and they want to get away from that person. So those are the basic visible goals. But underneath that level, underneath that level is another level, what I think of as a level level of fulfillment, of achieving one's destiny, where the goal is invisible. And that's what we're going to be talking about this afternoon. But this morning, we're going to be focusing on the achievement of that visible goal and how that plays itself out. In particular, how is that journey structured? Structure just means the events of the movie and their position relative to one another. What's the sequence of events? We've both been referring to the story that you're telling, or the idea of story as a journey not one of those journeys where you jump in the car, start driving, and just see where the spirit moves you. It's a journey where you know exactly what your destination is. This is why it is so critical that your story concept, that the, that the idea for your film have a clearly defined finish line or end point for the hero to reach. It's like if I say, it's as if I said, okay, we're going to go from L.A. to New York. The goal is to get to New York. Not only that, but we've got to get there in six days. So you would know exactly where you had to be at the end of each day to get to New York within that amount of time. What you're saying to the audience or the reader of your screenplay or your novel, if it is built around this kind of structure, is I'm taking you on a journey. As the hero, I'm going to get you to this visible finish line by the last page, not quite the last page, by by the climax of the movie. But that journey will be broken into very specific and I know this is a dirty word, but it's true, formulaic turning points that are always the same. No matter what the length of the story, no matter what the length of your movie, the key turning points will always occur at the same percentage of time in the course of that story. And all properly structured movies are divided into five key, or consist of five key turning points, which creates six basic stages to the story. Every properly structured movie consists of six basic stages. Five key turning points to this journey from the beginning of the story to the finish line your hero has to cross. The first 10% of what I consider a properly structured film or story is what I call the setup. The setup is that period of the story where you introduce us to your hero, create that necessary identification using sympathy, jeopardy, likability, humor, or power, and show that hero living her everyday life. This is the stage in your story where you say to the audience or the reader, This is who my hero was yesterday. This is the life that this character has been living for some time now. So in the firm, the first 10 pages of the firm, the first 10% rather, the reason I said 10 pages is because the formula is one page equals one minute roughly, and because most movies are about between about 90 minutes to two hours long. It usually ends up being about consistent with the page numbers. Executives often talk about the 10% turning point or the the page 10, page 30 turning point, the page 90 crisis and then the climax of the movie. We'll get to all those. So in the first 10% of the firm we are introduced to Mitch McDeer living his everyday life. Guy working as a waiter in a diner Top five in his class in, at Harvard, at Harvard Law, who is interviewing for positions because he's about to graduate. And who obviously cares deeply about his wife. Now notice what happens in that first 10%. Per- Number one, top five in his class, very good at what he does. Cares deeply about his wife, a good person. We feel sorry for him because he is obviously struggling to get by financially, having to work. He has to leave an important interview because he's committed to his job as a waiter in this diner or this restaurant. All of that is created to get us involved with this character before we reveal, before we see any flaws to the character. First create the identification, then you can show the flaws to your hero. Then, at the 10% point of the movie, your hero is presented with some opportunity. Something must happen about 10% of the way into your screenplay. Now, sidebar. For those of you writing novels, my belief is that these turning points can be extremely helpful in strengthening the emotion of your novel. But I think you can generally speaking, forget the percentages. They certainly wouldn't be quite as rigid as I believe they are when it comes to film. Now, if you want to write a novel that is obviously easy to adapt into a film, you might want to stick to the percentages even there. But most novels are much longer than screenplays, and you can meander a bit more. But still, this is the progression of somewhat any journey that a character takes in any story to a visible endpoint. So. At the 10% point, the hero is presented with some opportunity. Some, something happens to your hero that creates in them a desire. And that desire is to move to stage two, which is a new situation. So 10% of the way into the firm, he is offered the job with Bandini, Lambert, and Locke. And he accepts because his desire is to go someplace new, which is to work for that new law firm in Memphis. And so the next 15% of this movie, or of a properly structured screenplay, is this new situation. Now, I made a big issue earlier of saying your movie is defined by a clear, visible goal. A desire that has a clearly defined endpoint. This 10% desire is not that. In fact, it must not be that. Because if you establish your hero's, what I call outer motivation, if you establish what the finish line is and they start pursuing it here, your movie's going to die somewhere around the end of stage three, stage four, rather because you cannot sustain one desire for the entire story. It has to build. So the desire at the 10% mark is simply to go somewhere new. In fact, in many movies, the turning point is geographic. The new situation is actually someplace else physically. He goes to Memphis. In Titanic, she gets on board the ship. It's very typical that geography will follow structure. In Rain Man, he finds out his father's died, so he goes to Cincinnati. In Thelma and Louise, they go away for the weekend. So then for 15%, the hero is just acclimating himself to this new situation, finding out what are the rules, how can I get along, how can I adjust. As a general rule, the character thinks that it's going to be easy and oftentimes fun to be in this new place. Certainly that's the case with Mitch McDear. Then something happens at the 25% mark, which is, if you follow the classic sort of SID field structure, three-act structure, the end of act one, at the one-quarter mark, something happens that transforms that new situation into a specific, visible desire. It's the turning point I call the change of plans, because where the hero thought all he had to do was get along in this new place, now something has happened that makes the hero realize, no, I have to do this. And this is the most important structural principle, in my opinion, you can understand. That it is precisely at the end of Act 1, precisely at the 25% mark, that your hero's outer motivation, this visible goal, this finish line, is established and the hero begins pursuing it. In other words, if I ask you what is your movie about, whatever your answer is on a visible level, not what's its theme or what does it mean, but what is your story about visibly, that must be established at the 25% mark. <laughs> not before and certainly not later, because now The story is truly underway, and the hero's pursuing that goal. So at the 25% mark, as his suspicions have been building in the firm, he discovers the secret files about Kaczynski and Hodges and whoever that prove to him, oh, my God, Bandini, Lambert, and Locke is a front for the mob. I got to get out. And at its simplest level, the firm is a story of an attorney who wants to get away from a firm that's a front from the mob without getting him and his wife killed. That's it. Very simple story at that level. It's about escape. Now, the hero formulates a plan, and so for the next 25%, up to the midpoint of the movie, the plan seems to be working. So this is the stage that I call progress. Now, a plan working does not mean there's no conflict. You could never have 30 pages of a script with no conflict because emotion grows out of conflict. And no emotion means no reader. They stop. But it means whatever obstacles your hero encounters, they are either bypassed, overcome, delayed, or avoided in some way. The plan seems to be working. So his plan is, OK, I'm going to go get a private eye. I'm going to figure out how to get out of here. am going to get my brother's help. But then things are a lot tougher than the hero bargained for. They become a lot more complicated than the hero bargained for. So at the midpoint of the movie, which is both the midpoint of the entire film and the midpoint of Act 2, which is from the 25% to the 75% mark. At the midpoint of the movie, your hero passes what I call the point of no return. The point of no return in a story is just like the point of no return in any journey. It's when the traveler, the journeyer, is closer to the destination than they are to their point of origin. So, for instance, if you were flying from L.A. to Honolulu, and your plane develops engine trouble and you're more than halfway, you might as well try and make it. It makes no sense to turn around and come back. Symbolically, it's the same thing in a story, in a well-structured story. Your hero must become so committed to achieving the goal at the midpoint that they burn their bridges behind them and there is no turning back, no returning to the life that they were living at the beginning of the film. One of the reasons I love to use the firm as a model of structure is for this one scene on the park bench with the Stephen Hill character. He says, he's telling him, look, your company is a front for the mob. We're going to bring them down. So we need your help. We need you to steal evidence so we can arrest them. If if you don't, when we arrest everybody, we're going to throw you in jail too. And after he explains to him how trapped he is, Mitch says to him, are you telling me my life is in danger? And Voiles, the Stephen Hill character, replies, I'm telling you your life as you know it is over. It is the perfect line of dialogue for a point of no return. It's when the hero's life as she's been living it is over. And because she steps up, puts both feet in, as I call it, and fully commits to the goal, she can never again go back to the life she was living at the setup. So he moves into stage four which is what I call complications and higher stakes. Two things happen when the hero becomes that committed. It becomes more difficult to accomplish the goal, and it becomes more important to accomplish the goal. The obstacles are greater, so in the firm, now he's not only got the firm breathing down his neck, he's got threats from the Justice Department to throw him in jail, And he's got to steal evidence, which is going to make it more likely that the firm catches on and kills him. And if they do catch on, they're going to kill him. He either dies or he goes to jail. This is his choice. That means he's got more to lose. The stakes are higher. And now it's going to get tougher and tougher and tougher for the hero to achieve the goal, until finally the story reaches the end of Act Two the end of stage four at the three-quarter mark, which is the major setback. Something must happen to your hero three-fourths of the way through your movie that makes it seem to the audience, often to the hero as well, but not always, but certainly to the audience, that all is lost. Like, oh my god, there's no way the hero can possibly reach this finish line now. and now your hero is left with very few choices. The plan that they had is out the window. That's part and parcel of the major setback. They can't give up. They long ago burned the bridge behind them that would allow them to say, oh never mind, thanks for the job guys, but I'm just going back to Boston. Can't do that. So the hero is left with only one choice, and that is to make one last all or nothing, do or die, final push. And from the three-quarter mark to the last turning point, the climax of the film, the hero is going to give every ounce of courage, strength, and commitment she can to either achieve her goal or die trying. If your hero is not putting everything on the line, to get what she wants, we don't care. The audience will not care. If they don't care enough about it to risk everything, we're not going to care enough about it to keep turning the pages or stay in the movie theater. It's all got to be at stake in this last stage until the hero reaches this final turning point. Now, the climax is the one turning point that I, who obviously I'm a very flexible guy anyway, have an even more flexible attitude about the percentage, because where the climax occurs depends on how much time you need to leave for stage six. And that's what I call the aftermath. After the hero either achieves the goal or fails, But after that goal is resolved, after that desire, that journey is resolved, the movie is not over. We must, we meaning the reader and the audience, must see the new life that the hero is living as a result of having completed the journey. Or if it's a movie where the hero dies, either in the climax or shortly after, we at least have to be allowed to experience the emotion that comes with that. Now, the hero is pursuing a clear, visible goal. It does not mean the hero has to achieve it. The hero can fail, or the hero can change his mind. In Rain Man, his entire goal is to get this inheritance, and at the end he says, no, let my brother have it. But that doesn't matter because it was a higher-level choice. In Titanic, she has two goals, to get to America and to win the love of Jack. Well, she bats 500. She gets to America, but Jack, she leaves him at the bottom of the ocean, so, you know, there you go. Life's tough on those ships. But, so she gets one goal and not the other. Or sometimes you have movies where the hero, uh, well, it could be a sad ending where the hero dies, but still achieves the goal, as in Gladiator. Or you could have a tragedy where the hero just can't achieve the goal or realizes too late this was the wrong goal to go after. So your movie can end whatever way you want it to end, as long as it's clearly resolved. But we have to respond emotionally, and that's what the aftermath is about. So in The Firm, the climax is very extended. Because he has so many goals, they all have to be resolved. He has to get away from The Firm, that's the fight scene with Wilford Brimley. Then he has to get The Firm to get off his back, that's the scene in the hotel with the mob guys. Then he has to get the FBI, or the Justice Department, off his back. That's the scene with Ed Harris you saw. And finally has to win Abby back for his indiscretion and all the stuff he did. And that's the final scene in the movie. And then the aftermath is actually just that moment where they get in the car and drive away, and she says, what's in Boston? And he says, we are. Now, this structure, I just use the firm as an example, but I could pick dozens and dozens of movies. Almost all Hollywood movies follow this structure unless they are biographies where you're doing an extended story about a person's life and there's lots of goals contained. So the structure doesn't apply as well to something like A Beautiful Mind. That's basically, in a nutshell, what the visible journey is. I will come back to this because we're, there are going to be echoes of this this afternoon when we talk about the inner journey as well. But for right now, I want to open it up for any questions you might have about what I've said so far. Yes? Uh,
0: I always have problems with the progress. I understand complications in higher
2: states. His question is, he always has difficulty as a writer at the progress stage. The key is, what plan has the hero formulated to achieve that goal, and what are the obstacles that are obviously inherent in wanting that goal? I would suggest that if you're having trouble at that or any other stage, the the most likely culprit, the most likely difficulty is not in that stage, it's back with your outer motivation. My rule of thumb is, when you're in trouble, all roads lead to the hero's outer motivation. Make sure you have a visible finish line. If I say, what's your movie about, and you say it's about a character who wants to be accepted, you haven't got a movie yet. You don't have a visible finish line to cross. You don't have a story about escaping, or stopping, or retrieving, or winning. or, or some, It's not every movie falls into that, but something similar so first go back and make sure you've got an outer motivation then ask yourself what makes that inherently impossible to achieve. Okay, very important to be back at the end of 15 minutes and then Chris will take over and we'll go into the next stage. I'm still standing up here even though this is Chris's turn because I want to introduce him in return and most of you know Chris if for no other reason than he wrote a book Um, called The Writer's Journey that is just a wonderful, wonderful book. I I honestly consider it the second best book on screenwriting you can buy. (laughs) And it is embarrassingly a much better seller than my book is. I love hearing his approach to um, character and structure and the entire mythical stuff. So anyway, without further ado, please welcome, all the way from Venice, California, Chris Vogler.
0: Thank you, Michael, and thank you, audience. That was really undeserved. Thank you very much, though. Uh, What I'm going to do this morning is, uh, as I said, I'm going to review something that I think everyone is somewhat familiar with, this idea derived from Joseph Campbell's work. Now, first, how many people are aware of Joseph Campbell? I mean, most people now have gotten that. It's in the uh, collective consciousness. Um, That was really the beginning of things for me. Uh, I had always been interested in stories, myths, movies, television, all of it. Uh, I I got very intensely into uh, fairy tales as a kid, almost projecting ahead to what what I was going to end up doing the rest of my life, trying to analyze them as potential movies. I I remember very well reading the original uh, fairy tales or having them read to me and trying to figure out, well, this uh, just like the second act is missing something, and there's not enough backstory on this Little Red Riding Hood kid. Where does she come from? So, uh, I was looking for the Aristotelian principles and the mythic principles in, in these things even then. It's a little bit difficult for me to separate out the outer journey and the inner journey, because the way I devised this uh, uh, retelling of Campbell's system incorporates both, but I'm gonna try to push it in the direction this morning of just emphasizing the external, although there will be some of the inner things that come up. Now the, the approach here is going to be to run you through the typical journey twice, At different levels of magnification. The first time we're going to go through briefly at the long shot level and just give you sort of the overview of four major stages. Now, Michael talks about six. Other people say there are seven or twelve or nine or whatever. I would say don't get hung up on all these numbers. Uh, Michael makes me very nervous with this uh, percentage stuff. You know, that's. Uh, as he said, dirty word in Hollywood, to say formula, but I intuitively think he's right, and I do uh, find that it's very consistent. If you take a hundred Hollywood movies especially and analyze them, you're going to find at least 75 of them are hitting all of these marks, not because somebody sat down with Michael's plan or my plan or anyone's plan. It's just that's how you tell stories. That's how people are used to getting them. We're all programmed with many, many examples. So a lot of this is uh, intuitive rather than uh, analytical. We have turned it inside out, and we've become kind of analytical about it. But a lot of it is stuff that we all know intuitively, because we're all talking about... Human problems and human development and the stages of life that we all go through. And that's what I'd like to begin with talking about these, uh, this diagram and the, f- the four major stages that I see. Now, for those of you listening on tape, I'm referring to a circular diagram. Michael and many other people, uh, like Sid Field, for example, tend to graph the story in a linear way. It's a straight line going from left to right across the page, and there's a lot of value to that, but I think one of Campbell's insights or his particular approach was to take that standard diagram and bend it around and make a circle out of it, and you get a slightly different sense of things by doing that. For one thing, it emphasizes the idea that stories are often cycles, they're part of someone's life, and life is proceeding along, uh, maybe in a linear way, but it also has this quality of traveling in circles, where you go uh, uh, around a circuit uh, of a certain uh, stage of development, and you may meet familiar characters along the way, uh, and, and familiar geography or unfamiliar geography, but you are going through some kind of a cycle, and maybe later in your life you'll return to this uh, at another stage uh, of development and uh, see many of these same things again, but from a different perspective. So this idea of cycles is important in this approach. Now, I've divided the circle equally into two sections. Uh, this O.W. and S.W. mean the ordinary world and the special world, because what I found as I read Campbell's discussion of all the myths of the world, and as I applied it to movies and tried to test it out, I found that almost all stories do take place in two different worlds. One is an ordinary world that is well known to the hero. It's the world usually the hero comes out of. It's their background, their context, uh, and the beginning of the movie is often presenting that gestalt, that overview of the hero in relationship to some background. But then the stories typically move to a special world, someplace that is new to the hero, exotic or strange, and uh, this is where a lot of the interest and conflict comes from the clash of the hero's values with a new world that has different values. Now, I've drawn it uh, symmetrically uh, as half-and-half, as and, half, and the reality may be a little different. Uh, another way of uh, thinking about this is that this is also, this circle, is also a model of human consciousness. It's a model of the human mind, and uh, the ordinary world would be corresponding to the conscious mind, and the special world is sort of the unconscious. And when we do psychological development, or when we go through a big psychological change in our lives, often that is the journey. You're leaving the ordinary, comfortable world of all the things you're conscious about and entering into the unconscious and digging into the things you've repressed or forgotten about. Now we're talking a little bit more about the inner journeys, but uh, you have both. You have the sense of uh, leaving a physical ordinary world and also an emotional ordinary world and entering into uh, a special geographic place, physical place, or a new set of conditions, but also a, uh, a psychological new reality. And as I say, I've drawn it symmetrically, but the reality might be a little more like uh, this, where the, the conscious or the special world occupies only a very small amount. I mean, we're conscious of many things, but the number of things that are in the unconscious is much, much greater. That material is infinite, really. What's in your unconscious mind or what you have access, is, is really, access to is really infinite. So maybe a little more accurate picture would be to draw it with... Uh, that line up near the top. Now, what I discovered as I began to work as a story analyst, you know, I read thousands and thousands of scripts and tried to apply these ideas that I found in film school uh, from Campbell in his book The Hero with a Thousand Faces. What I found was that people in Hollywood talk about the three-act structure, and this has always been the language it's always been known more or less, but it was in a, a a bag of stuff that was called the unwritten rules of Hollywood. Now, a few years ago, somebody made a revolution. Sid Field wrote down the unwritten rules. I'm sure most of you know Sid Field's work because he was a pioneer and very fundamental in laying out this linear approach and his observation and his articulation of this, you know, Hollywood secret knowledge was that there are three major movements or acts. Now, as I looked at it, I said, that's um, helpful to talk about. When you're discussing scripts, you say, you know, in the first part uh, I felt we got off to a good start, the second part, the middle, got a little bit hazy and confusing, and then the third part, it just all fell apart, uh, the third section, but in... and that's typical, but in... that's the first draft, anyway. But as I analyzed things, and as I tried to write and apply these things as a screenwriter myself, I found that, yes, Sid's numbers hold up pretty well. Usually, he says in a 120-page script, it's about 30 pages to get things set up, 60 pages to unfold it and develop it and bring in complications, and then another 30 pages to wrap things up. And what I found in practice was that that 60 pages is a bear. This is really a tough thing to get through, because uh, it exhausts both the writer and the audience to try to go through 60 minutes of non-stop anything. We naturally need interruptions or breaks, or you could say punctuation. Really what we're talking about today a lot is the question of how you punctuate the story, where you put in pauses, where you emphasize things like exclamation points, where you draw a period and you end a scene or an idea, Uh, you know, how you uh, raise questions uh, and and help that propel you through the story. Uh, So anyway, I found that uh, you needed punctuation in the middle here, and that the story for me, both reading them, reading lots and lots of them, and also trying to write a few, was breaking down into four movements, and there was something natural and understandable about that to me. Four movements suggested the movements of a symphony, for example, and I could understand the similarity, the comparison there, uh, in a symphony where you're trying to create an emotional response, and you're trying to create different kinds of emotional response in each movement, and it was useful to look at a story or a play as uh, almost a musical composition that had these different signatures and tones and uh, uh, colors and so forth, just as you would have uh, in a a symphony. Uh, Another metaphor or comparison that was helpful is the idea of the four seasons, and I think the origins of storytelling, and this is where the mythological insight is, is applying, the origins of storytelling come out of observations of the world and how people move through it and how the seasons of the year have a dramatic structure to them. They have their climaxes in the holidays, they have their ups in spring and summer and their downs in fall and winter, so there is built into the drama of the year this uh, sense of uh, four seasons or, or movements, and it seemed to correspond pretty well with what was going on in movies. Now, I got my terminology mostly from Campbell. I've adapted it a little bit, and I've edited here and there, because he wasn't talking about movies. He was talking about myths and legends, fairy tales and folklore, and they're similar, but they do have their distinctions. And I I urge all of you to think this way. As you listen to these ideas and anyone's ideas about writing, I, I think you find, there's oh, there's a useful idea, and that's that's right, I agree with that, and that, oh, I never thought of that before. But at some point, I think, you make up your own, and you, you create your own lingo and your own uh, shared language with the people that you work with, uh, and I think that's what you must do here, is absorb it and, you know, take notes or pull out a piece here and there that sounds right to your observation of the world. This is all about how you perceive things as an artist. So you've got to make it your own. And that's why Campbell called his book the hero with a thousand faces, not the hero with one face. He could have said that, because in a way it's true. There is one general human story that keeps being told over and over, but he said, no, it's a thousand faces, because it shifts with the point of view of each person, and especially each culture. So cultures have some distinctions here. Now, the four movements uh, Campbell gave names to, and I have stuck by those by and large. Uh, the opening movement, uh, he just called separation. Separation, because that is the act, or the action, that is happening in that first act. There is a lot of word play in this system, uh, in this way of looking at things, and uh, I find often you have to look at the words and their origins or understand m- two or three meanings for them to really get the full package. When we say an act in a script or a play, we mean a division of time, uh, but we also can mean an action that's being performed. And what's the action of the first quarter of most stories? It is to separate from something from that ordinary world. So think about your own stories as we go through this and see, does this apply? Does this make sense? Uh, It's no problem if if it doesn't, because we're flexible here, but uh, I think this is what you must do, is try to plug it into your own your own stories. But I find most stories have this uh, this general action going on for the first, say, 20-25 minutes. It's all about pulling up your roots, and breaking the apron strings, and getting out of uh, one environment and into another, sometimes with difficulty, uh, and sometimes with great eagerness. I mean, for example, in The Firm, uh, the character is uh, separating from that old world, and in fact he's uh, running from it, you know, running from the fact that his mom is in a trailer park, and that he has an unacceptable brother, and, He doesn't want to face any of that, so he's running headlong into this. That's one condition. Other heroes are still clinging to their ordinary world and have to be yanked out of it, but the act of separation is the key verb there. The second movement takes you across this line that separates the two worlds, so you're entering this new world, and Campbell says most likely what's going to happen is some evocation of the feeling of Descent. That's the act, is to descend. Now, there are many ways to uh, describe this, and I, I would point out to you that my way of looking at things is poetic. I'm all about metaphors, because Campbell said that's what a story or a myth really is. It's a metaphor. So when I say something like descent, it may be, well, they're not descending in my story, they're actually climbing at that point you know, don't be so literal about it. Don't get hung up on the specific verse. Think about the intention behind them, the idea of leaving something and taking a plunge, in a figurative sense, into some new world. Uh, We talk, for example, about falling in love, and in a love story, you will maybe separate from a former love, or from some condition where you can't love or be loved, and then you begin to, and it has that feeling, even in the language, of falling, falling in love. Now that takes you around to roughly uh, the halfway point, Michael's 50 percent, or what Sid Field calls the midpoint, very important moment in my way of looking at things, because it gives punctuation to the story. It gives a signal to the audience that a section is done, the work of one part is done, now something really big usually happens in the, roughly the middle of the story. It may be delayed to maybe 75%, but some major event has to be confronted here, and that has usually a characteristic of death and rebirth. Now, this is the key of my whole approach and Campbell's whole idea, is that all the myths and legends are replaying some kind of symbolic scene for us that represents the mystery of death and rebirth, that in order to uh, go through the stages of life, the the idea is uh, that to live fully and to fully express yourself and... Fully experience these various stages we all go through. The old life has to die. You could say the ego has to die time and again. You know, and this isn't just a one-time thing in your life. It happens over and over. So uh, there is that sense in all literature and art of uh, representing this tableau of death and rebirth, and the ancient myths the Greek drama, all of the art from the ancient world uh, is somehow expressing this idea of death and rebirth. In the actual legends themselves, the myths, the heroes often go into some cave and fight a dragon, or they go into the underworld and face death, or they actually die and somehow by a miracle are brought back to life. And we see this in religions around the world, and it's a very, very common and well-understood thing. And it seems to work at all levels, even down to jokes and uh, comic books and uh, the the most silly sitcom or kids' uh, animation show. They all somehow touch a corner of this idea of death and rebirth. So you're descending towards that death. And then the next movement, the third part of the circle, third quadrant of the circle, is what Campbell calls initiation. And it's a little strange to have an initiation three-quarters of the way through the story because initiation doesn't it mean beginning, a new beginning. What is meant here is that, yes, you are beginning again, with this new life. You've, the old life has died in the first half of the story, now you have survived this ordeal of death and uh, some part of you has died or you've dealt with death somehow, and now you are initiated into the new life. This is the beginning of that rebirth process, and there are many ups and downs that can happen here. Uh, sometimes you have love scenes, as people earn the right to be loved by shedding and sacrificing the old ways, you may also have uh, problems like ego inflation because, hey, we've faced death and we've conquered the devil and we've stood up to the forces of darkness, so aren't we as powerful as they are? You know, and this is what happens sometimes in war stories or in uh, police dramas where the hero sort of gets slimed by the struggle with the opposition and they take on some of the qualities of the enemy. So there are possible pitfalls here, but the main idea is one of just getting your bearings and experimenting again with the idea of of this new life. Now the final movement, the last quadrant, Campbell calls return because in most stories there is a sense of closing the cycle and coming back around to a beginning point. Uh, sometimes it's very literal and geographic and architectural. You go back to the same building or the same room or the same uh, town and revisit it. that place having changed. You see it differently now, your attitude and your performance is different because of what you've been through. Uh, But there are some special cases that I should mention. Uh, One thing is to, to keep in mind, and I think we have some examples that touch on this that we'll be discussing today, but there is a mode, the tragic mode, where the hero makes a mistake. Either early on they are in denial about something, so the tragic case is one sort of subset of this, where they may not return or they may not complete the thing, and that's the tragedy, is that they failed. The other interesting exception is something you find in foreign films, in Australian movies, in movies from Asia sometimes. Uh, French films like to do this, and student films like to do this. They don't have this conventional closed structure. This is the, the st- closed structure I'm describing is the fairy tale form, and Hollywood movies are a lot like fairy tales. They have the same sort of parental attitude of putting you to bed After scaring you a little bit with a story, they put you to bed reassured that, you know, all your cultural values are just the same, and so we return, and nothing really has changed. Um, But there is this other pattern where instead of returning and closing the circle, it's open, open open-ended, and the story may loop off into uh, some infinite uh, direction or new turn. Uh, It may hook into another story if there's going to be a sequel. So you complete part of the journey, but leave some things open, like the villain gets away, as in Star Wars, uh, at the first Star Wars movie. I mean, we killed the Death Star, and we rescued the princess, but Darth Vader spun away, and we know he's going to come back someday. And there's also a wink between uh, Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia, so we know something is gonna go on between them later. Incest, if I'm reading it right, but uh, that, that's, that's left uh, to be discovered. So this open-ended possibility is there. Uh, I, I think it's creeping into American movies a little bit, uh, a more awareness or acceptance of this, where you don't resolve every question and you leave some mysteries and question marks. And again, this is about punctuation. Most American movies end with very emphatic punctuation. uh, An exclamation point. We won! Hooray for us! Hooray for our side! You know, Top Gun is like this. Yay, we killed some Russians that have families at home, and wow, aren't we great? We killed those Russian flyers. So... um, you know, we end most of our American films this way, or with a period that uh, it's definitely over, that's the end, that's all, but there is this other possibility that things can go off into the ellipsis of dot 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 of well, then who knows what happened, you know, and the attitude is a little more mature and less parental, and the idea is Uh, I'm not God here as the filmmaker. I'm a participant in the art just like you are, so let's all together figure out how this ends. You go home and keep talking about it. So there's a sense that the story goes on in the creative discussion that's been stirred up. Or it may end with a question mark of, did they? Did they get together? Did they make love? Were they meant for each other? Is it a happy ending or not? And in this open-ended form, uh, often they will end with with this uh, hook of a question mark. I think it's interesting just even the shapes of these things. The question mark is uh, shaped like a hook and the questions are very important in both the inner and outer journey of setting up at the beginning some problem or question. Will he achieve that outer goal and will he or she overcome this inner thing that we're going to talk about later? So this is the overview and now I want to go back and rack lenses and get to a closer view and quickly give you a sense of the uh, 12 stages the way Campbell describes them and the way I've derived them Campbell didn't want to be pinned down he would have not gone along with these percentages that would have really freaked him out but uh, he, he doesn't like to be pinned down in his books and sometimes he gives 10 stages and sometimes 12 stages but I'm a little closer to Michael this way, that I like things to be a little more systematic. Uh, A lot of the origin of my book came out of writing a memo at Disney. Many of you know this story. This memo is sort of legendary. Uh, When I was at Disney, uh, we were a corporate culture that wrote memos. That was how you survived and got ahead in that company. So I, all on my own, nobody gave me the assignment, wrote a memo on Joseph Campbell's theories applied to movies, and I wrote this little seven-page thing that was called A Practical Guide to Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and I distributed it to some friends within the studio, and this thing just took off. It was like uh, an infection, a virus that spread all over Hollywood and got into everybody's brains and in their desks, and I, I realized this when somebody from another studio called me and said, we've run out of copies of your memo, you know, and I'd written hundreds of memos, so I didn't know which one they were talking about. But I finally realized that, no, this thing had legs. This was like a little robot that went around all on its own spreading this idea. And that was my impulse. I wanted to get some uh, discourse going about it. So this, this all really goes back to that. And there I took Campbell's... I forced Campbell into this 12-stage uh, format and tried to find examples from contemporary films at that time and also the classics that I do love. So this is uh, a development of that original memo. Now uh, the first stage is the ordinary world. The ordinary world is that place where you're trying to establish sort of the baseline for the movie. And I think a very important principle in all the things I'll talk about today is to remember the stage, remember the background of, of film uh, in the world of theater. Theater had its three or 4,000 years to develop, uh, and a lot of that has seeped into the movies, and we've gone off in different directions, but there's still a lot of heritage there to be used. And a useful term from the stage is that, staging. You know. And I think a mistake that a lot of writers make is the failure to understand they have to dramatize things. They have to stage things so that the audience can see them. And in writing the script, this means what do you write? How do you, do you describe things? And I think one of our interests has been to see some wonderful trick that's done in a film, and then go back to the script and say, "Is that in the script? Did he write that in there?" For example, in Erin Brockovich, you know, she's having this discussion or trying to sell herself in this uh, this resume uh, meeting where she's presenting her herself and putting her best foot forward, awkward though that is. And uh, at a certain point, the guy just says something like, "Listen" or "Look" or something like that. And instead of uh, reacting to it and saying, oh, now I see you're going to turn on me and this whole thing is going to go to hell and I've wasted my time. Her face just falls. And I thought that was brilliant. And so we look back to see, is it in the script or not? And in fact, in one of the drafts, it actually is written in there that her face falls, some you know simple way of saying that. So I'm very interested in that and intrigued in how you transmit these things on paper so the reader gets it and the executives get it. By and large, people reading scripts do not possess a certain faculty called imagination. Yeah. They, they, they just don't, and, and people don't in general. It, it's, it's quite a leap to you know, imagine things or, or make a picture come up uh, in your head. That's a really good reader or executive who can do that. So uh, it's always a writer's problem to figure out how much detail I put in and how I, I describe these subtle things. Anyway, the ordinary world is that stage where you are presenting and dramatizing the situation of the hero at the beginning. So it's very important to think about these simple, dramatic, staging questions of like blocking, as you would in a theatrical presentation. Uh, Where are they standing? What is their relationship to the background? So you think about all these things and you specify it in your script. Are they part of the background, you know, like blending in in camouflage so that we see they're well integrated with it or they're trying to blend in? Or do they stand out in garish colors against a mild background? Are they standing with everyone else in a group or are they apart from the group? You know, what is being projected just by physically how you place them in that frame? So the ordinary world is your opportunity to do that. Now, Michael mentioned... And this is very important, this idea of identification. I get mystical about this because I believe that there is some kind of magic force that's involved here, that when you are a public speaker who's charismatic, or when you're a good teacher, or you're a great singer, or you're a good storyteller, you have this ability to project something out of yourself, and also invite the audience to project something out of themselves. And I believe it's real that, that there is a kind of a cable that comes out of everyone's solar plexus. And when you are watching a story or reading a story or imagining a story, that thing comes to life and rises up and hooks up with the screen or that mental place where you're creating the story. If you're reading a story, uh, there's some kind of cable connection to that world and this is what you must do is draw that out of people now it's not hard to do because people are cable ready i mean they come ready to hook up uh, you know that's standard issue with a human being you want to hook up to something to another group to another person have relationships and also have relationships with stories so people are eager to do it, but you have to give them certain conditions, and Michael described those very well, those sort of minimum things that have to be established. Uh, feeling sorry for the character. Uh, a lot of the fairy tales begin with the orphaning of one character. Uh, often they begin with the funeral. The mother has just died, or the father dies and leaves, you know, three things to the three brothers. So uh, that automatically creates sympathy. And these other things he mentioned as well help to create this bond, things like uh, the competency of the hero, that they're really good in their particular thing, or they're, they have a, an attitude, they're funny uh, or powerful, or, or these, these various possibilities. So the ordinary world is that stage and where you present the hero and make the hookup, make that connection you hope, uh, with the, the character. They talk about, uh, in Hollywood, the characters... I, he wasn't likable. Well, likable isn't really the important word. <coughs> the word is relatable. You don't have to like them. They have to be relatable. You have to be able to relate to something. People had trouble with something like, say, natural-born killers, Because, you know, what these people are doing is like way outside my range, so I can only watch it at a certain distance, like watching a train wreck, you know. Some sympathy, some understanding of it, but not really inviting the audience to come and be part of that, unless you're a natural-born killer. Um, So the the ordinary world is about this establishment of, of that connection. Also, it should make a contrast. You're trying to draw lines and parallels and also draw uh, separations, make contrast and make comparisons at the same time. And one of the contrasts you must draw is between the ordinary world and the special world. So you want to think here, I want to make the ordinary world as different as I possibly can from the special world. The next major stage in any story and this corresponds with Michael's 10% point, is about 10 pages in, you will find uh, that you are encountering some kind of a call to adventure. The hero gets a call, maybe a phone call, uh, maybe somebody comes in from the outside world and says there's a problem, or maybe it comes from inside. Now, an interesting thing about this whole system is that Everything seems to exist on a grid of uh, possibilities, and the possibilities are things can happen inner or outer, as we've been talking about, and they can also be positive or negative. So every element of this, the ordinary world itself, the call to adventure itself, could be an inner call or an outer call, and it could be positive or negative. So you have to think about this, too, I think, is what is the orientation, what is my uh, setting that I'm putting the movie at at the beginning, and uh, what am I telling the audience? You know, you're sort of dealing cards here for the audience and letting them know uh, where they are in space and time and morality, you know, what are the ethics of this world, good and bad, positive and negative. So the call may come inside or outside. Sometimes the inner call is just an urge or a discomfort <laughs> with that ordinary world. A lot of times the heroes are out of sync, and they've managed so far through using coping mechanisms or addictions or crutches of one kind or another, but it's clear to the audience something's got to change. Usually it's not clear to the hero. But this call comes and says, hey, there's an adventure. It may be the inner one that we'll talk about later, but now we're just speaking about the outer calls, where, hey, the, the, the town is burning down, or there's a volcano that's just erupted in, uh, on La Cienega, and uh, we have to do something about that. Uh, so the call comes to the hero and um, begins to stimulate this process. Now, the most common response to the call is to refuse the call expressing some kind of fear, reluctance, resistance, or just flat-out refusing to go. I'm not going. No, there's no way you're getting me in there. And also you may notice that if the hero is committed to the outer adventure, there may be some denial or reluctance or refusal on the emotional level. Uh, So that expresses that feeling of refusal. Now, how do you get over that? It's a barricade in the story. It stops the story, so the story must keep rolling. It has an energy uh, that wishes to drive forward, and it often is answered by introducing a new energy, an archetype, which might be a character, it might be a force or a thing in the story. Uh, Let's just talk about the character uh, of the mentor. Meeting with the mentor. This is one of those places where I changed Campbell's language a little bit. He talks about the wise old man or the wise old woman, and I have deleted those phrases, wise, old, and man or woman, because they don't always apply. You sometimes have foolish mentors who teach us something by just being crazy and out there, uh, and not restricted the way a wise person might be to the rules. Uh, They might not be old, because you can learn things from the young, especially if the hero is old. Uh, in the King Arthur stories, you know, he needs young Percival to come along and say, hey, you forgot about all your chivalry stuff, and, you know, uh, when are we going to go fight the dragons and get the grail? Uh, so the young sometimes are uh, fulfilling this function of getting the hero past the fear or teaching them what they need to know. And then it might not be a man or a woman. So I use this term mentor to cover this uh, this energy that enters the story and gets the hero over it. Again, it could be positive or negative. You might have uh, mentors who are tempting the hero to make a wrong decision. It may be something like intuition, that, you know, I just have a feeling I've got to get out of here. Uh, It's just, it's raising up inside me. I have to do it. I don't know why. You know, that could be enough to get the story over this point of fear. Uh, Or it may be some code of ethics that the hero has. Some heroes, you know, the the macho heroes, Clint Eastwood, people like that, don't usually have an older, wiser version of themselves telling them what to do. You can hardly even imagine that. Like an older Humphrey Bogart telling Humphrey Bogart what to do. No, they are self-contained, but they also have within them a code of ethics, and that sometimes is what gets them to get, you know, maybe accept a case if he's a detective, he doesn't want to take the case, but his inner sense of right and wrong says, yeah, I have to take it. Next stage is crossing this threshold that separates the ordinary world and the special world, and this is a distinct movement in most stories. Uh, in movies especially, it's one we like because it allows us to show contrast, and that's visually stimulating, uh, and you get to move from one place to another. So this is where we have a little traveling music maestro and where we might uh, drop the curtain and change the scenery or have a traveling scene. And it might be a a cut that lasts a part of a second, or it could be a whole section of a movie that's 20 minutes of traveling cross-country or making the difficult journey across the plains or whatever is appropriate for your story. But there is that sense of now committing to the adventure and... uh, now that you've sort of put together your team and gotten your plane loaded, and uh, you're ready now to take off. And a a note for writers is, despite numbers and percentages and so forth, I'll just give you one rule of thumb, which is get here as fast as you can. You know, uh, with the attention span of the audience today, Most of the time you want to get to this point as quickly as possible and they know a lot of these steps already So you can give it to them in shorthand They don't have to have a whole 20-minute sequence for refusing the call and saying no I'm not going that can be dealt with all pretty efficiently and it's desirable in a commercial screenwriting environment to get to that point as soon as possible The next stage is tests, allies, and enemies, and here is where you find out what is special about the special world. So the hero has to go through a period of experimenting and finding out what's new and different, and how do I have to change my behavior to adapt to this world, or what's going to happen if I don't change my behavior a lot of comedy comes out of that. If Eddie Murphy leaves Detroit and comes to Beverly Hills and he doesn't change, then there's going to be clash of cultures there, and that can be a source of humor or dramatic conflict. And here the key thing is that the heroes are tested. They Yes, they figure out who their allies are and they continue building the team, or they figure out who the enemies are, who the emissaries of the enemy are in this world, and they notice what kind of polarization exists in the world? And typically, the cliche is to do this in a bar scene. Uh, there are, you know, again, in a hundred movies, there would be seventy-five bar scenes at this point because it's a convenient place to stage this kind of uh, learning about the new rules and finding out what team you're on and what is the polarity in that uh, universe. Let's say in a western, you come to the new western town, and it's always divided between the settlers and the railroad men, or the cattle barons and the uh, the small immigrant farmers, or the Indians and the temperance workers, or some kind of polarity, and the hero has to choose sides. And this is a test for the hero. These are small tests. They're not fatal. You don't flunk on these tests. These are like pop quizzes in a college class. They test the hero uh, under pressure, In small ways and also help train the hero in the things that will be needed later in the journey. The next stage, and this can take quite a bit of this second movement, is approach. Um, I used to call this uh, approach to the inmost cave, and that confused people because they thought, oh, now we're in the inmost cave. We're approaching the cave. This is preparation, reconnaissance, rehearsal, Again, experimenting and testing so physically in a in an action story, this might be where we build a model of the bank that we 're going to rob and we uh, practice and we You can have comedy there or jeopardy there but uh or romance there, but uh, it 's largely about getting ready for this next event at stage eight and this is really the key or the mainspring to the whole thing the uh, idea here. Is that um, once having done all this preparation, now you really have to face whatever it is you were afraid of. That's one definition of this stage, is the hero faces his or her greatest fear. Whatever it was they were afraid of, they will now have to confront. Uh, And many times that is death, or a kind of a death, again, thinking metaphorically, death of their spirit in the inner journey, death of the enterprise. Maybe it looks like the thing is going to fall apart at this point and there may be more points like that later where it looks like all is even more lost, but this could be a critical moment halfway through where it looks like we're failing, or sometimes literal death is brought in. Uh, Sometimes as I read stuff I I begin to wonder if maybe death is a character. Death is, is maybe the most important character. Having a death certainly adds weight to a story. It adds a certain gravity to it, seriousness. You take it more seriously when death is involved. Now that may be sort of a ghost in the background, a death of someone years ago that now comes back and haunts you. It may be the death of a member of the team at this point. So you experience it without, you know, really dying yourself, but you still have a taste of death. Uh, or many variations of this where maybe the hero has to kill someone in the, uh, in the struggle. They have to kill one of the members of the enemy's team. Or in Shakespeare sometimes, he has to kill one of his own men because they've broken the overall rules. Even if it's a good friend of his, he has to sacrifice that friend at this point because he broke the rule for the whole army. So death is confronted here, and it almost always is staged in something that reminds you of a cave. The location is important, uh, the sense of going underground or into something, or being in some isolated place, again making a stage where we can present this tableau, almost, this sort of symbolic uh, form of death and rebirth. The next event is a reaction to this. A lot of this is about Uh, cause and effect about action and reaction. There will be a response to having survived death, to having done this heroic act, the basic heroic act of facing death, and that is the reward, some payoff. I have called this in the past seizing the sword. I think in the original edition of the book I called it that, because so often in the Scandinavian and North German myths, It is about a hero who has to go retrieve a broken sword that belonged to his father, or find some treasure that's guarded by a dragon, and that idea of taking possession of your birthright is the idea I'm trying to get across here. There is some reward for having faced something you're afraid of, and we know this is true in life, that when you do those difficult things, there is some kind of growth inside you. You feel bigger and you have a better sense of self, because you have confronted the things you fear. Now, the next movement is what I call the road back. This is that sense of turning the corner, uh, of rededicating yourself to to the change and uh, to finishing the assignment. Uh, You can kind of lose track of things, both as a writer and as an audience member, in the confusion and turmoil and conflict of this long second act. So you need to re alert the audience, oh, remember, we were supposed to save the dog. That's very important. The dog must be saved or else the whole world will fall apart. Uh, so sometimes you have to bring that up again. Or you have to increase the urgency in the story. So they'll do this by plugging in, say, a, um, uh, a chase scene. That's a very common pattern here. Uh, either the hero is chasing... A villain who's run away with one of the members of the team, kidnaps somebody, or taken the treasure that we worked so hard to get over here. Now the villain rises up again and snatches it and we have to chase him. Uh, it's that conventional scene from all the old Roy Rogers and Lone Ranger stories. Every half-hour episode of Lone Ranger or Roy Rogers ends the climax, really, <laughs> is the bad guy gets away and the hero has to gallop along shooting you know, at him and eventually either lassos him or jumps from one horse to the other and drags him to the ground. They have their last final punch out and uh, the hero wins and, and everybody goes home and we sing happy trails. So um, the, uh, the idea though is to uh, accelerate the intensity of, of the story. In the theater they talk about racing for the curtain If a director feels that the energy is lagging, he'll say, he'll he'll slap his hands together in rehearsal and say, come on, we have to race for the curtain now, meaning you've got to wake the audience up. There is a natural life cycle or sort of dream cycle to watching a film, which is that it's very intense, it takes a lot of your attention and energy, and you get exhausted at a certain point. It's almost as if you have had kind of mental orgasms, and this is the time to, you start to sort of drift off here, and we need to wake you up again. So that's why they will put in some urgent new event, uh, new uh, uh, crash on the soundtrack sometimes. When I watched movies as a kid at the drive-ins, I would often fall asleep during these scenes about romance or something I wasn't interested in, and then suddenly there'd be a big bang on the soundtrack, or the music would kick in again, and I would wake up, and I would know, oh, now the rest of the movie is coming. So you need to alert the audience that uh, we're in the final movement. And the last two stages, Eleven and Twelve. Eleven is this uh, whole arc of the return uh, as Michael said in his examples uh, of the firm, for instance, uh, a lot goes on here because there are many levels that have to be resolved and they're all variations of the same energy or pattern which is that of another confrontation with your fears, but this is the maximum, this is the climax, this is the big one, this is the final one, this is the one that really will decide whether you've succeeded or not, in either your outer or your inner goal. So you may need separate scenes to deal with each relationship or each level of the character. So you end up with a series of climaxes or climactic scenes uh, that uh, go off like a string of firecrackers, ideally. But the sense here is to get into it, and this is the mythological part, to get into it a feeling somehow that the hero is sacrificing something. They're not just facing death again, but they have to give something up. Now, they find a convenient way to dramatize this and reduce it to objects that we can see in fairy tales. The hero in a fairy tale will often have to give something up at this point. They'll let go of something. Uh, The Vikings had this in their uh, legends, uh, if somebody was escaping in a boat, they would put the treasure out on a raft and let that float behind, and then all the pursuing ships would stop and get the treasure, and then they would get away. Um, So it wasn't a very profitable thing being a Viking, I guess. The margins were small, but um, the idea anyway is, is to give something up, and often you you are looking for a way to dramatize this, and to show the change in the character, that the character has evolved somehow, uh, and has changed not just by what they say, and often they will do this by a change in costume or location, like in Aaron Brockovich, uh, they're not in their crummy, uh, relatively crummy law offices, now they're in a little bit higher rise, not the highest rise of the big shots, but they're in a, some, they're in a medium rise, and uh, you know, it physically shows that they have accomplished their, their goals uh, and are more successful. The final movement is what Campbell calls return with the elixir. Elixir is a word from Arabic that means a powder or a substance uh, like a magic potion that is supposed to heal all wounds and cure all ills and restore health to a society. It's like the Holy Grail. And Campbell's point was, it's no good as a story unless the hero brings something back from that journey to share with everybody else. Uh, the hero has to, again, maybe sacrifice something right at the end. Instead of keeping the information or the treasure to herself, the hero distributes a little bit of it, or it just radiates out from them. You know They're so changed by their experience, they don't have to say anything, they just smile, and everybody is affected by that. And this effect ripples out and should have an impact on the whole culture and the whole world. That's the best, is when you get that sense that the hero has learned something, uh, has achieved something, and that it's going to have an impact on society, that it means something, in other words. So this is the idea of the journey, and I just want to say, that um, there is, I think, something magical about this, about this way of thinking that corresponds with human physiology or human psychology, I don't know which. But I just say that if you do this properly, it has an effect on the audience. And somewhere, maybe several times... But especially right at this resurrection and return with the elixir part, there can be a sort of pulling of a string. When you pull the string and you show us images or you show us uh, a person realizing something or doing something, when you show their behavior changing and that they've got it and they have a new picture of the world, bang, some kind of bomb goes off in the audience. And everybody in the audience is almost physically rocked by that. This is what you pray for that you have been good enough to achieve this, this feeling of pulling the string and having the audience go pow, something, some bomb go off in their heads where they now realize something. Now I realize, watching Tootsie, I realize my idea of women was all screwed up, and now I have a better understanding of what it means to be a woman because I've identified with a guy putting on those clothes and living through that. Uh, that was a, one very good example for me of the pulling of this string, because it was it was like an explosion in my head, and suddenly all my ideas were changed. My whole paradigm shifted, and movies can do this. Movies can create this kind of peak experience. So I, I wish for all of you that you have that joy someday of finding uh, that, that connection with the story where you can make that, make that bomb go off in the audience. Okay, so we have just a few minutes for questions, so uh, anybody want to respond, especially on the outer side? Yes? Can you
2: give us an, an example of an of
0: a, of a, of another elixir example? Yeah, uh, I would say too that there's a book outside uh, Myth in the Movies which is written by a colleague of mine and he took, Stuart Voitella uh, took 50 movies and ran them through this sort of meat grinder of uh, the hero's journey and uh, gives you good examples for all these things. But elixirs can be, uh, again, a very poetic, very open and, and free sort of interpretation of things. The elixir, let's say, in uh, Titanic, uh, you could look at it this way: that the jewel is this sort of MacGuffin or this object that they've channeled a lot of ideas through, and at the end of the story, she throws it away. Heartbreaking moment for me. I wanted to dive off the edge and get that thing, you know. But, um, you know, it, it was saying that the physical elixir is not important, and that that was her sacrifice at that moment. The real elixir was having had a good relationship with Jack, brief though it was, and having incorporated all those things. She kind of embodied him, so she bore away with her this elixir that ran her whole life, the whole rest of her life, was that and she's still radiating it and we're still getting some of that glow from her uh, understanding. So that, that was one example of, uh, of an elixir. Many times it's love or it may just be a good story to tell. That is a great elixir right there. Just coming back from a journey to some strange place and having a tale or two to tell about it is plenty of elixir because it gives people ideas about how to live their own lives. So it's all relative, we're all relating to the situation of other, uh, other stories. Let, let's get another question. Yes? About, like, um... Yeah, that's an interesting question. What if you want to start in the special world? And that brings up something I, I think should be overlaid on all of this. You know what really determines the structure is the needs of your story, whether people change or not. You know We like to talk about character change. But whether they change or not depends on the story, because maybe you're telling a story about a character who doesn't ever change. Remains of the Day is like that. You know, the character, that's the tragedy. He doesn't change. He's the same at the beginning and the end, although he has lots of opportunities to change. Now, your question is about what uh, a, a sort of untypical situation where maybe you want to begin in the special world. The ordinary world is still implied in that. You know, and we may go back and visit it later. This one structure you could be using here is the short story structure. Because short stories are so short, they like to start them in the middle or almost near the end or, you know, at some point very deep into the the story. And then we catch up. Later we'll come back and review that or there'll be a flashback, you know, or or there are structures where uh, you begin at the end with the death of the hero and then we come back and the rest of the story explains how we got there, maybe following it in linear sequence or maybe jumping around. There are many, many possibilities here, and I'm glad you asked the question because it points out that the needs of the story dictate everything, really. Uh, And so if your story is one about fragmentation, then maybe you don't want to follow this linear pattern, or if it's about uh, the importance of this special world and the ordinary world is like an afterthought It's like we do have to address it. We'll do one scene or one speech that talks about that But basically it's all happened here. That's okay. That just depends on the needs of your story Okay, okay I don't hear my dinger going off. Uh, I didn't so that's why I didn't hear it go off. This is logic cause and effect All right. I am I think that would do it for the questions now
2: because we want lunch Uh, Do you want to talk about... uh, Um, First of all, this is unplanned, but what is fascinating to me is you are taking a journey here, because here you are, you started out, you were in your familiar world, and you came in either thinking, I'm ignorant about screenwriting, or I pretty much know this stuff, but I'll just see if I can get something new. And then I walk up here and start, you know, saying, well, I'm gonna take you someplace new. We're gonna take you someplace new. And a mission, at a, Now you got to admit this. The initial reaction is to refuse the call. But gradually then you start to say, OK, I'll go along for the ride. I paid all this money. I'm going to stick with it. And what I'm doing is sort of dragging you into this. <laughs> it's sort of like, well, yeah, I know these movies he's talking about and maybe there's something there. And then at this point you cross the threshold and Chris takes over. And it seems to me he is much more a part of this. I mean, he's taking you much deeper in this. I consider this approach a deeper sort of approach. It is more of a descent in a good way. There's also there's also this allies and enemies, because I know some of you are thinking yeah, that Hague guy, all he is is an anal retentive structuralist, I don't want to... but Vogler, he's kind of, you know, flexible, I like that. Or, or you might say, What is that Vogler talking about? I don't care about fairy tales. I want to write Titanic. And so so you sort of align yourself with one of the two of us. And I never realized that when we set this up Mm -hmm. until I was sitting here listening. Mm -hmm. But there it is. I think it's kind of cool. So you have one hour to go out, buy some stuff, eat lunch, and be back at 1 o'clock. Come back reborn. Right.
1: That concludes the morning sessions on the outer journey. Lunch is over, and we move to the inner journey, as seen first by Michael (laughs) Haig.
2: Okay, um, as you're sitting down, before we get underway again, I'm going to make... um A very brief commercial plug. We had uh, support of a number of organizations to do this, but two in particular were co-sponsors of this. Some of you are very familiar because you already belong or you joined to get the discount to this seminar, which was uh, perfectly intentional. But uh, those are, first of all, the Scriptwriters Network. And they uh, provided the room and they helped immensely with promotion of this. There should be information out on the table about that group. Okay. This is, to me, not just advisable but essential for you to join, if you're here in LA, certainly, as a support system, a source of information, a source of access to people, a source of a terrific newsletter that has more of those things as well. And I'm a big believer in writers' groups just because it's nice to get energized here, but it's cold in front of that word processor. And it's nice once a month or so to encounter other people that have your passion and that don't think you're an idiot for trying to do this. <laughs> and the Scriptwriters Network is so well organized, and, and I can't uh, speak of it too highly because it's just, to me, an essential group. The other group is the American Screenwriters Association. It is a national group and one of the ways I heard it described once, which I thought was quite good is it is the support system sort of worldwide for screenwriters until you are qualified to join the Writers Guild They, they provide what the Writers Guild provides for the screenwriters who have sold scripts and are qualified to join that although they do have members that are members of the Writers Guild as well but the ASA is a national group, but it's actually worldwide now. That also has an e-zine as well as a newsletter. They are the sponsors of a wonderful screenwriting conference called Selling to Hollywood. That's held the first weekend in August, and you should watch for that. Or if you go to my website, it'll link you to that. But I think, th- but that group is also it provides you with discounts to Hollywood Reporter and different things. If you're forming a writers group in your own community, it'll help you do that. It's just a terrific group, and it's growing quickly, it's really coming into its own. Enough about that. Okay, we're now going to begin my favorite part of this whole journey or this process, in fact the very reason that Chris and I wanted to do this, because it's to get into this deeper level, what we're referring to as the hero's inner journey. It's to go underneath the level of plot and structure and story, in a certain sense, at least visible story, to get to not only deeper levels of character, but also the deeper levels of meaning, the richness of the screenplay or the story or the movie that you're creating. Now, I have to begin, though, by giving you a really strong, whatever it is, admonition and that is this. Stories exist first and foremost on the level of plot. Yes, we are going to go deeper. Yes, we are going to get into what is known as the character's arc and the theme of the story and the meaning of the story, but none of that can happen unless you have this visible journey in place. The deeper levels grow out of that visible level This is what, first and foremost, is going to elicit the emotion. This is what's going to draw the audience in. This is what's going to draw the reader in. And this is a very, very difficult thing to internalize, to accept. And the reason it's difficult is because this is not why we go to the movies most of the time, and it's most of the time not the reason you want to write movies see i know why you're here you are here because you want to write movies that not only touch people but touch them deeply that say something about the human condition that reveal something about you that allow you to get to that universal level to get to the level that chris will refer to or or carl Jung, or joseph campbell as the collective unconscious when you go see a good movie you don't come out of the theater saying oh I love that movie because I love that an ogre wanted to rescue a princess or I love watching them survive the Titanic or certainly in something that gets even deeper or richer than that you talk about the characters you talk about the originality you talk about the depth and since that's what we talk about leaving the theater and that's what we strive for as writers and filmmakers the difficulty is to avoid going there first, meaning to think that you can skip over this level of plot and structure and just get into character richness. And it does not work. It does not work. I say that as an absolute. Certainly there would be exceptions to that, but by and large, and certainly if you're pursuing Hollywood movies, you gotta get them in the seats before you can change their lives. And before you can get them in the seats, you gotta get your movie made and you gotta get them to read and buy and produce your script and this is what's going to do that. Then once you've got this in place you can go deeper and get to that level of richness and meaning that is what you strive to do and that is going to increase the emotional experience and increase your connection to the audience or to the reader of your screenplay or novel. And that's what I'm going to talk about now, not just some alternative way of looking at a movie, but the parallel journey, and show you how that intertwines with the structure that I already gave you. Now before I can do that, I need to start by just defining what I mean by this inner journey again. See, the outer journey, or what I call, for instance, the plot or the outer motivation of your movie, is this simple. It is a story about a hero who wants to accomplish a clearly defined, visible goal. To cross a clearly defined, visible finish line. It is a journey of achievement, I would call it. It is a journey that is designed usually to establish some kind of hierarchy. To be able to say, I won. I did what nobody else could do. I'm the gladiator who killed the emperor. I am the industrialist who saved the Jews in Schindler's List. Because for all its meaning and depth and and, uh, resonance and historical um, um, fulfillment, you might say, Schindler's List is a very simple movie. It's a story about Schindler, a guy who wants to rescue the Jews that work in his factory. That's it. That's the visible finish line, and everything is built around whether he'll accomplish that goal. But the inner journey, the one that's underneath that, is what I call a journey of fulfillment. It is the character arc from, you might say, from protection to courage, from fear to courage. It is from being unevolved to being evolved, to being fully realized. I like the Jungian term to be fully individuated, meaning fully defining yourself as an individual, as opposed to being defined by others. The heroes of movies are very often, at the beginning, defined by other people or by situation, by their parents, by their job, by the beliefs they've always carried about themselves. In the end of the movie, they stand up and say, no, this is who I am. It's not what you said I was. It's not who I've always thought myself to be. I define myself. I am complete and unique as an individual. And that's what that character arc is. And it runs underneath that. Now, in Shrek, the conflict in the visible journey, the obstacles that seem impossible to overcome, are visible obstacles. Okay? They're a moat of lava, it's a fire breathing dragon. It is Lord Farquaad who wants to stop him from taking the princess away in the end of the movie. It is the very essence of the journey. It's At the beginning, the obstacle is just those fairy tale creatures who are swarming around infesting his swamp, in his opinion. They're visible things. It's the villain. It's the bad guy. It's the iceberg. It's the alien invasion. It's the magical powers of the lost Ark itself that's going to keep them from, from retrieving it it's all visible obstacle, but on the inner journey of the character, the one that runs underneath that visible level, the conflict and the obstacles come from within the hero. I'm going to explain all this in more detail in just a second. But one other reason I love this part of it is because It should become so clear, and I want you to think always on these two levels as I'm discussing this, that I'm also talking about real life. I will often use the word, we do this, or you do this, because the characters in movies are mirroring what we all do in terms of the own obstacles we face or create for ourselves and what keeps us from achieving our own destiny, our own fulfillment, our own individuation. So the first thing you need to understand, to understand how that inner journey works, is that there are qualities of character that you must realize, that you must define for your characters. And the first of these underlying characteristics is what is the character's longing? Now I'm going to use the phrase every. You know I like to talk in absolutes. You've already figured that out, perhaps. And it, it never means everyone, and it doesn't mean without exception. I agree with Chris. You take all these ideas and then you see how they apply to your story, and you can see that there are movies that are exceptions and so on. But my belief about pushing the envelope or breaking the rules is the people who do it well are the ones who know the rules. So let's start by giving you the rules as if they apply to everything, and then we can look at how you can modify them or break them or bend them. It's like Gene Hackman in the, form, in the Firm says, I want you to bend it. He says, how far do you want me to bend the rules? Just so long as you don't break them, he says. You know, and he's talking about being a corrupt attorney. But it's kinda like this. You can bend the rules as much as you can bend the rules as long as you don't lose the emotional involvement of the reader and the audience. And good filmmakers do that. But let's start by talking in absolutes. And the first absolute is, in a movie, that explores character arc, that goes to this deeper inner journey level, the heroes always possess some longing. Longing is something that the hero says out loud that they want, but they are only paying lip service to it because they are too frightened to really step up and go after it. So, for example, in Titanic, Rose says at the beginning of the movie, to everyone else it was like a ship of dreams, but to me it was like a slave ship. And then she said, because I longed for adventure. I wanted passion in my life. And she feels trapped. So she's declaring this. This isn't something hidden from the hero. The hero is declaring, I want passion. I want adventure. Well the fact is, Rose, You want some adventure, uh, it's simple. All you do is say goodbye to Cal the rich guy, say goodbye to your mother, and walk down the docks in Liverpool in 1912 and you'll find some adventure. (laughs) Of course she doesn't do that because she's too afraid. She's paying lip service to that desire. The heroes of movies are bullshitting themselves at the beginning with whatever they say they long for because they don't have the courage to go after it. Now, sometimes the hero is not aware of their longing, and then it takes the form of what I call a need. A need is, in fact, I got uh, this image from Chris, uh, hearing him lecture once, and I love this phrase he used. He says, the heroes of stories very often begin the story with a piece missing. Something, they're not whole. They're not complete. And I like that image. A need is, okay, it may seem like the guy's life is pretty together, or the woman's life is pretty together, but clearly there's some gap, there's some missing piece that they, are going, they need in order to be fully realized. And we can see it, it's as plain as the nose on your face, but they don't get it. In fact, they're so afraid of it that they won't even express the need. And this is what goes on in both The Firm and Shrek. And I want to come back to The Firm because we only talked about it on the level of plot before, but it is a wonderful example of the same character arc that I'm going to talk about for Shrek and that we're going to talk about with these other films later. And that is, in The Firm, Mitch McDeer would not admit that something is missing from his life. But what he truly needs is to get in touch with the law. He has lost his ideals. He has lost his principles. And he wouldn't say that. He doesn't start the movie saying, oh, yeah, I'd give anything to be a wonderful lawyer. I'd be, I'd give anything to save people from injustice or anything like that. But we can see that he's awfully mercenary. Even though we identify, we start to see right away there's a dishonesty to him. He lies in that interview about his brother, and I'm going to tell where that is revealed more clearly. And the same thing in Shrek. Trex acts as if his life is fine. Okay, he's this ogre, he's got his swamp, it's all sort of roped off, or he wishes it was eventually, because it gets infested with fairy tale creatures. But he would say, oh yeah, everything's perfect, and yet we can see there's something missing because of course he has no one in his life. He's completely disconnected from anyone else. So the hero begins with a longing or a need. But when the hero expresses the longing, you as a writer then are going to come into the picture and you're going to do something really nasty. Okay? You are going to say, Okay, you say you long for adventure, Rose. I'm going to give you that. Because I'm going to present you with the brass ring that is the embodiment of what you have always longed for. So, what pops up into Rose's life. Here's Jack. You know, he's dirt poor. He's down in steerage. He had to sort of win his passage. He practically sneaks aboard the ship. But he is the embodiment of passion and adventure. And that's how she sees him. And she says, great! I've always wanted passion and adventure. And so she goes after it, right? No! Because she is terrified. Why? Well, that brings us to the next quality of the character, and that is the character's wound. Your hero must have suffered some wound at the beginning of the film, must have already suffered it when the story begins. Now what I mean by wound is simply an unhealed source of continuing pain. A wound is an unhealed source of continuing pain. Something, in other words, must have happened to your hero before the movie began, before the novel began, or in the very first scene, if you have kind of a prologue opening, as in Twister, where she sees her father killed, or in uh, in contact where she sees her father killed as a little girl and it creates identification because it's undeserved misfortune and then we jump ahead in time to meet the grown-up who is now still suffering at least subconsciously from this wound. The pain has never fully healed and as a result of suffering that wound that is going to create a fear in that character. Now. This wound could be an event, such as seeing their fathers die in those two movies I just named. But very often it is an ongoing situation. It is something that occurred through their childhood or for some extended period of time. So in the firm, what was his wound? It wasn't that one day something traumatic happened. It was that he grew up in a trailer park with an abusive stepfather, an alcoholic mother, and a brother who went to jail. And that existence that he led at the be- before the movie began ha- is affecting him now and through the course of the movie. Now the wound may not be revealed right at the very beginning. Notice that the scene where that is revealed is most clear. First in the interview we, we can tell he's lying about not having any brothers or sisters. But even more so when, um, when Abby, his wife, says to him, this is no, not about making money, and it's certainly not about doing anything for me. This is about a brother you pretend you don't have and a mother in a trailer park. See, that pain of growing up in that dirt poor, and his response is, it's easy to say you know what it's like to be poor when you never have been. He is still feeling the effects of that wound. Or in Shrek, it isn't revealed until the clip that comes almost, actually well past the midpoint of the movie, when Donkey says to him, what's your problem, Shrek? And Shrek says, I'm not the one who's got the problem. It's the world who has the problem they see me coming and they turn around and run away. Now think of the pain that he is expressing that he has never even allowed himself to say up to that point. So out of those wounds that those characters have grows a fear and that is a fear that they would be subjected to that same kind of pain again that if Shrek is terrified that if he allowed himself to get close to other people to the fairy tale creatures or to donkey or certainly to the princess my god that's unthinkable and out of that fear grows what I call the character's identity. What I mean by identity is there are several ways to, to define this. But what I mean by identity is whatever it is that we see ourselves as being, it's whatever it is we are attached to, it is the way we define ourselves to the world. So your identity, because this is just like real life, is whatever you latch on to to say this is who I am. Your identity could be your job, your family, your age, your background, geography, ethnic, whatever. Could be your beliefs, could be your upbringing, could be your hobbies, could be your kids, could be your family, whatever. It's whatever you cling to, whatever you're attached to. that You say, this is who I am. But the thing about identity is it's not true. It's not who you truly are. Because underneath all of that identity is what I call a character's essence or truth. And the best way to define essence is by what it's not. A character's essence is whatever would be left if you took away all of the elements of the character's identity. If you took away everything you're attached to, what would be left? If I took away your money and your possessions and your background and your family and your beliefs and your job, what would be left? That's who you truly are. It's that spiritual, if you will, it's that deeper, universal, invisible quality that is who a person truly is. An identity is just whatever it is that covers that up because here's the thing about identity. It's sort of a good news, bad news situation. The good news is your identity will protect you. Whatever you fear as a result of the wound that you encountered, there's your identity to create a comfort zone for you, to create protection. There's a wonderful image in Shrek where as soon as he meets the princess he has this um, armor, this helmet, from a knight in ar- knight, a suit of armor on his head, so the princess doesn't see him. Okay, that they just didn't pull that out of the air. That's very symbolic because that's what every character in every movie does. They put on a mask. It's this false front. It's this protected armor that keeps us from exposing who we truly are and protects us then from experiencing that pain that we are terrified of. Now why do we need to do that? Why all the fear of showing who we truly are? Well, couple reasons. One, because to strip away that armor exposes us to being wounded again. Why do you think it is that Mitch McDeer won't, you know, so goes after this affluent place where he can make more money than anything else? See there's that wonderful moment in the firm where he goes into the firm, and this is great screenwriting because there's no dialogue to it. It's a very brief scene. He walks in all alone into the law library, surrounded by the law, and he doesn't even notice it. What does he notice? The table. And he sits down and he just runs his hands along that marble table because that's what he has longed for. That's what it is he's after. It's wealth its affluence its status its this is no trailer park Okay. so the good news is your identity protects you bad news is you don't get to be who you truly are don't get to be who you truly are and that brings us to what I think is a great little trick that I created to figure out what your hero's identity is or what the identity of a character in a movie you see is, just ask yourself how would my hero fill in the blank to this sentence I'll do whatever it takes to achieve my goal I'll do whatever it takes to get what I'm after just don't ask me to blank because that's just not me. That's an identity statement. It's not, I don't like to do that. It's not like saying, no, I don't like radishes, okay? That's not an identity statement, it's just a preference. It's when you ask me to do something and I say, oh, no, no. No, 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 that's not me. I don't do that. I don't do that. That's an identity statement. I'll do whatever it takes. Shrek says he wants to or he's starting to feel he wants to win the love of the princess, but to do it, he would have to risk opening up and letting her in, and risking that she would accept him as an ogre. (coughs) No, because what is his identity? His identity is, I don't need anybody, and how does he justify it? It's not me that's got the problem, it's the world. He says, it's interesting because he said, ogres are like onions, they've got layers. And what he thinks he's saying is, well, there's, he's, he's starting to own up to the idea that deep down there's something more to him, nobody can see it. But what he's also saying, unbeknownst to him, is he's created layers of protection. That's why Donkey keeps saying, well, onions, nobody really likes onions. Parfait! That's what you want to be, parfait! Because he's protecting himself from other people getting close. And in Titanic, She'll do whatever it takes to have freedom and venture. Just don't ask her to let go of the millionaire and the security that comes with having a place for her and her mother. Because her wound is she was obviously raised to believe that as a woman, you cannot survive without a rich man to take care of you. And so what happens is, as the writer, you say, "Okay, here's the brass ring. Get to the climax of the journey, win the day, either win or retrieve or stop the bad guy or whatever it is, and you will achieve what you longed for. But to get there, what you have to do is gradually get rid of all this protection and stand up for who you truly are. And that is terrifying because if I say to you, your identity is what you believe and what you own and your family and your job and your friends and your background and I'm gonna take it away you feel like I'm taking away who you truly are and there's a name for losing who you are and that is death I mean, it's fascinating to me because when Chris is talking about this and he says this is a journey and it's about dying and death and resurrection, I absolutely agree. Every story that involves character arc is a story about life and death because it may be literal. Chris and I are both saying that there are literal deaths very often. What he calls the ordeal or I call the point of no return is very often a literal death. There certainly is that, but more than that, to me, the real death, the real life and death is, it is the necessary death of one's identity in order to be fulfilled and achieve one's destiny. And that's what the inner journey is. It is a journey from identity to essence that will parallel and interweave with this visible journey of achieving this concrete goal that I talked about earlier. And the other element of this journey overall is it cannot happen in an instant. That's terrible writing. You cannot have an aha moment. It is because of the obstacles both outer and inner that force the hero to find courage that they did not previously have, they get stronger and stronger and more courageous and more courageous until gradually they are able to shed the identity that's been protecting them and fully realize who they truly are. So the conflict, when I say the conflict comes from within the the hero, that conflict is a tug-of-war. There is a constant tug-of-war and must be in your hero between protection and risk, between identity and essence, between fear and courage. And it's not like for the first half of the movie they're afraid, and then they say, I'm tired of being afraid, I'm going to be courageous, and then they're a hero in the last half. No, it's a little bit of courage, too much, pull back. A little more, pull back. A little more, pull back. And that's where there's a magical intertwining with the outer journey that the hero takes. Now, Chris is going to talk a bit later, he's going to touch on anyway, or in the outline is stuff about an, uh, twelve different archetypes. But I don't I couldn't come up with nearly that many. I've only really got four. Okay. But I always start you easy and then he takes over and just makes it much more, much bigger and much more complicated to me there are four basic categories of what I call primary character now the first one is what we've been talking about throughout the day and that is the hero that's the protagonist it's the main character of the story it's the character whose goal drives the plot forward it's the character whose outer motivation defines your plot it's the character with whom we most identify so enough about that character the second category of primary character is what I call the reflection. The reflection is the sidekick. It's the wife, husband, best friend, coworker, mentor, trainer, coach, boyfriend, girlfriend. It's the character who is most closely aligned with the hero at the beginning of the movie. Now in the plot, that character is there to help the hero achieve her outer motivation. So for example in Shrek the fairly obvious reflection character is Donkey because Shrek doesn't know where Lord Farquaad is and Donkey says, take me, take me and he goes along and he's his sidekick and there's all this typical hero reflection banter and ultimately that character is there to help the hero achieve the visible goal So we're rooting for him to both get his swamp back and even more to win Princess Fiona. And Donkey's trying to help him do both. But on the inner level, the reflection character is the character who reveals to the hero his inner conflict. It's kind of like a conscience, but in movie morality, doing the right thing means living in one's essence. What the reflection character does is say, keeps saying to the hero, wait, wait, this isn't right. You shouldn't be doing this because, and this is a very typical line of dialogue in many movies, it just isn't you. This isn't like you, the, the reflection will often say. You're not being yourself. What is Donkey? He's just always pushing Shrek. So Come on, Shrek, wake up and smell the pheromones, he says. You gotta go after the princess. And Of course, Shrek resists. So the conflict with the reflection character will often be around this issue, that the hero is not stepping up and being, acting out of her essence. Okay. The next category of primary character is what I call the nemesis. The most obvious example would be a villain in a movie. But it could be an opponent, Apollo Creed is a classic nemesis character, or it could simply be a good guy who's in opposition to the hero. In a movie like Amadeus, you have a hero who's a killer, Salieri, and the nemesis is actually Mozart, who's a much more moral person, but because he's the character who most stands in the way of the hero achieving his goal, Mozart is the nemesis in that movie. Now here we have pretty close to a villain in the movie Shrek, because Lord Farquaad is the nemesis. Why? Because the nemesis is the character, who is in the greatest conflict with the hero about achieving the goal. Remember, Shrek is falling in love with Princess Fiona. He wants to win her love, but the person who most stands in his way is Lord Farquaad, who's going to take her away and marry her and turn her into a... make her his princess or give her half the kingdom or whatever he's going to do. But on the deeper level, the nemesis is the character who embodies the hero's inner conflict. Remember the hero's inner conflict is this tug-of-war between identity and essence. So the nemesis will always be there as an example to us and to the hero. Now sometimes the nemesis is a bad example, an example of the dark side, you might say, of living totally in identity and sometimes the good side. In the case of Shrek, the nemesis is the cari- uh, the nemesis Lord Farquaad is the embodiment of regarding ogres as less than human, so to speak. Less as unworthy. Because he's constantly, oh, isn't this cute, he says at the end. The ogre has fallen in love with the princess and he's putting him down. He is reinforcing this idea that Shrek could not possibly win the love of a princess because he's so ugly he's just an ogre. He regards or treats Shrek the way Shrek treats himself at the beginning of the film. And finally, there is the romance character. The romance character, if you're writing a love story, is simply the object of the hero's sexual or romantic pursuit. It's Princess Fiona, or it's Jack in Titanic, or it's Michael in My Best Friend's Wedding that she's trying to win back from Cameron Diaz or it's the voice on the radio in Sleepless in Seattle. And the romance character on the plot level is the object of pursuit. It's part of the visible goal. But on the inner level, the romance character is the reward for having overcome the inner conflict, for having moved out of identity and into essence. There's a reason thematically that Shrek cannot kiss or tell Princess Fiona how he feels when they're eating the field rat there and having that romantic scene by the campfire. He's not courageous enough yet. He pulls back because he hasn't fully evolved. It's only when he goes to her wedding and says, I love you princess, that he wins her love, she lets him kiss her, and then they're both transformed, her physically, both of them spiritually, into realizing they are each other's destiny. So the romance character is the reward for having overcome that. And here's the other nifty thing when you're writing a love story. I absolutely love love stories. More than anything, I think that's sort of where I live with movies, either romantic comedies or introducing love stories into even action films or dramas or whatever, because it's such a rich way to bring out character arc. And the thing about love stories is this badly written romantic comedies or badly written scripts with love stories are often bad because there is no logical reason why the hero and the romance would be together. I'm betting Chris, who's read more scripts than I have, would bear this out. But again and again, when I used to be a reader or story executive, scripts would cross my desk, and it would be like there would be these two people and the guy was always handsome and this hunk and just rich and had everything together and the woman would always be young and blonde and buxom and beautiful and it was like they'd never been on a date before they met each other it's like if they're so attractive why isn't someone else in their life okay why are they waiting for this person and then when they finally get together it's just because the writer wanted them to in a good love story there's absolutely a reason it's always the same reason the reason the two people get together is because the romance character recognizes the hero's essence underneath that protective identity and falls in love with that. And this is the person who sees the hero as she truly is. When Jack first meets Rose in Titanic, He says, what's your name? And she reels off, Rose, da-da, da-da, da He says, well, I'm gonna have to take some practice there. I'll just call you Rose. In other words, I don't give a shit how many names you've got. I see who you truly are, which is someone who is beautiful on a deep level. It's a wonderful device that he paints her in the nude. It's because that's what has to happen in every good love story. The characters must see each other naked. It's not that they have to take their clothes off in every movie, it's that they see who they truly are. He sees her stripped of all of that finery that hid her. The opening shot of Rose is she's hidden by that giant hat. It's the antithesis of her being absolutely naked. And when you're creating conflict in a love story, which you must, the conflict comes at the level of identity. So when the two characters, or at least the hero, gets too frightened of exposing himself, he retreats to his identity and then they argue or fight or break up. And the breakup would always be at the end of Act 2. That's the major setback in Love Story. So in a love story, hero and romance are in conflict at the level of identity and connect at the level of essence. And that brings us back to this six-stage structure. Now, I used to think that character arc just occurred in its own sweet time, wherever it was. And I think if you read my book, I sort of refer to it that way. I say there's a structure to the plot, but not to the character arc, and I was wrong. I think there's a very clear structure to the arc for the character. Because each of the six stages I gave you before correspond to a stage of the hero's inner journey. Even though through the movie there is a constant tug-of-war between identity and essence, there is also an, that's why they call it an arc, it's a gradual transition or transformation. So in the setup, remember that first 10%, this is where your hero exists completely and totally within her identity. Shrek is just an ogre who keeps people away. Rose is just a woman who exists in all of this um, protective wealth. Then, an opportunity at 10% is presented to the hero, and for the next 15% of the film in that new situation, not only are they getting used to the new situation, your hero is going to get a glimpse, a peek, at what life would be like living in his essence. And in Shrek it's, it's, there's this very pointed moment. There's a very subtle but obvious sense at which Shrek is refusing the call, because he steps out and he says, all I want is privacy, living in his identity, and then what's the opportunity? All of these fairy tale creatures, and he says, oh no! And he says, I want to get you off my line, I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get you back. And he thinks they're going to just run away, and instead they all applaud. And somebody comes up and drapes um, a robe off, or, off over him. There must be some name for a royal robe. It's like he's being crowned. You're our hero. And he, he like, shakes his head and immediately shrugs it off. He's getting a glimpse of what it would be like to be accepted, but he wants nothing to do with it. He just wants to be in his identity, but he's still getting a picture of it. Then what happens? Stage three goes into... or or that leads him into the new situation. And then, of course, at the one-quarter mark, Lord Farquaad says, okay, you want your land back? Here's your goal. Rescue the princess, bring her back to me. That's the outer motivation. That's the visible goal. And it happens precisely at the 25%. So now what happens? For the next stage, the hero is straddling the fence, or straddling something one foot into essence, one foot back. Not fully committed. He's still talking about onions and layers and he just wants to go in, get the princess, take her back and be done with it. But he is starting to pursue something that is going to make him more of a leader, more popular, more accepted, that's go- and he's starting to get closer to donkey, which takes risk because he's never really had a friend before. And then at the midpoint, He gets the princess, they come down the hill, precisely at the midpoint, what happens? He takes off his helmet and tries. There's that wonderful moment when he smiles, that sort of toothless smile, trying to look his best, okay? And now he realizes, wait a minute, I'm starting to fall for her. So that's the point of no return, and he starts pursuing her until he overhears her. He gets too frightened when he hears her talking about ogres as too ugly, and you can't have a relationship with an ogre. He doesn't know she's talking about herself, because she's also retreating at that point to her identity, but that's when major setback. Typical for a romantic comedy, which is what this is, the two people will separate at that point. And of course, then the audience thinks that all is lost, because what's happened is, on the inner level, once the character passes the point of no return, they fully commit to living in their essence. Shrek is going to open up and risk doing that, and now the outside world starts coming in. He doesn't think she can love him. Lord Farquaad comes in and takes her away, and so the hero retreats. The hero gets finally so frightened of risking this new thing that they make one last try at retreating to their identity, and that really is the major setback at the end of Act 2. So they run away and then she says what all heroes must then say in stage five and that is wait a minute this sucks this may have worked for me at the beginning but I've had a glimpse I've had a taste of who I truly am this doesn't work for me anymore I can't do this I have to go after who I truly am I have to be myself and I certainly have to find my destiny which in a love story is the other person and so that's the final push. It's saying, I don't care what it takes, I will risk death because I already, I already experienced it. My identity is already dead. I can, I can do this. And they take every last ounce of courage they have until they reach the climax. And the climax is the moment not only of achieving that visible goal, it's the moment of fully realizing the character's essence. And that takes us into the aftermath. The aftermath is the part of the story where we say, "Okay, this is now the new life the hero is going to live, having fully realized who they truly are. And so at the end of Shrek, we see him leaving the swamp that was his protection and leaving behind the fairy tale creatures, because the fairy tale creatures were her identity. This is, a, this is really a movie about getting rid of the fairy tale definition of the way you should be, or the way life is, and defining themselves. So they ride off into the sunset, and they're fully living their essence. And one last thing, which you may or may not want to hear, but as I said at the top, this is very much about real life. Everyone in this room has a visible goal might be slightly different but you either want to finish a script or you want to get an agent or you want to finish your novel or you want to get it published or you want to get your movie produced or you want to finish your film or you have some brass ring you're after because you long at a deeper level to be a part of making movies and you are pursuing that goal because it's part of your longing that's the good news but here's what I got to tell you we all pay lip service to what we long for. There's a part of all of us that we frequently, we always have to go back and revisit that you can say, yeah, I want to make it in Hollywood, but what you also have to ask is, how would you fill in the blank? I'll do whatever it takes to sell my script, just don't ask me to blank because that's the solution. You've got to get in touch with what your inner conflict, you've got to get in touch with your identity, but the answer is find your longing and live in that space, risk going into that space, because that's what heroes do. They want so badly to get that, that finally it's worth the danger and worth the risk of, le- of dying, of letting who they thought they were die and resurrecting as something much more. Okay, any questions about anything I said about inner, inner motivation or the inner journey? Yes?
0: I totally identify with the ogre. I am an
2: ogre. What he said was he saw, he totally identifies with Shrek because he feels like an ogre himself. He actually said he was an ogre, but I'm going to be nice to the guy. He isn't an ogre. He just felt like an ogre. And that, first of all, shows the power of that story and the power of that writing. But it also would say to me one other thing. And that is when you connect with certain things in movies like this, then that's probably a good place to go when you're developing your own stories. There, is, there are the stories about the outsider who is cut off. There are the stories about the people who see themselves as unworthy. You could argue that almost every hero in every movie is an outsider in some way and is finding a way to, to get back into the circle of some kind. And so that, I would also use anything you respond to Positively or negatively, use those in your own writing to say this is probably leading me in a direction that's going to resonate for me. Other questions about this inner journey? Yes, in the very back. I'm trying to go after, say, a character wants an abstract thing, look, search for meaning, search for truth, like His question is I'm starting wanting to write a story about a search for truth and then I'm trying to come up with a plot that does that. I don't know that... that, I can't say it's impossible. It wouldn't work for me. I think that there are two probably more productive starting points. One is with goal, okay? In other words, start with a goal that you just think would be exciting or funny or romantic or sexy or whatever, and then figure out what character would be best to put in that story and let the character emerge, or start with character. I think starting with character or starting with objective is going to be more productive than starting with theme, because you've got such a huge universal basket to choose from, because there's so few basic themes to explore, that I don't think it's going to get you very far. So I would start with either character or goal. Okay, Here's what we're going to do. 15 minutes only be back, because we've got a lot to cover. Chris has a lot to say. And then when you get back, he'll give you his piece of the inner journey.
0: Very good. Okay, folks, so let's settle down. I know you're all stimulated. You're writing your scripts, changing your lives. Okay, I just had um, a couple of points that I wanted to um, touch on, maybe little leftover things or other thoughts that, that have occurred to me. Uh, One question this morning was a very good question about these different points uh, that I'm emphasizing, that Michael has emphasized, uh, at the halfway point and the three-quarter point and so forth. And people get a little confused about this, uh, particularly about, well, now where's the climax and what's the difference between a climax and a catharsis and so forth and i i think i have one way that may simplify this matter a little bit and that is to look at each one of these movements the four that i've described as a little play they are each one is a miniature play that has its own beginning middle and end and therefore should have its own climax so When we talk about climax, we're generally talking about the last one uh, at the, what I call, resurrection, or Michael's 75%, or even later on, uh, just before the little wrap-up piece there. Uh, But actually, there there can be many climaxes. And uh, at a minimum, I think, you need to bring some kind of closure and high point of the action to each one of these four major movements in the story just as in a symphony there is a climax to each uh, movement of of the uh, the musical composition where the music kind of runs up a ladder you know and then there'll be some little tail at the end that finishes off that musical thought so you need to think about that and try to provide that kind of again punctuation for the audience so that there is a climax to this opening movement a climax to the uh, first part of Act Two, where this big event happens, and that is the climax of uh, of that event, and it sort of divides the second act into everything that leads up to the big event, and then the consequences that follow upon the big event, and then that period of initiation or period of uh, accepting the consequences of of uh, the big event has its own. Climax, uh, its own turning point, and then finally a big one. The word climax, by the way, is from Greek and it means ladder. It's the same word. A climb comes from the same root word. Climax in Greek means a ladder. So there's this sense of always uh, climbing, of the energy always getting higher and higher. Now maybe it drops back down again after you've reached the climax at, say, 25 percent, then the energy calms down a little bit, but then it it will slowly rise or get pumped up by the scenes to uh, a high point at the halfway point and so on. Uh, Just in terms of language and uh, terminology, I would go along with— I thought what Michael said was brilliant. I I think this analysis he does— of the psychological events that are going on is, is absolutely brilliant. And it corresponds with my own observations, uh, particularly in this area. Uh, I don't know if we use exactly the same words, but the, the fact that it seems in every story the character, the main character, and actually all the characters, start out with some kind of an outer goal or a desire or a, what I call a want, and I oppose this to the need. That's the inner thing. So characters have some want, some outer drive or desire that they want, but often there is an inner need and it's invisible to them or they're not very conscious of it. And it might be obvious to the audience, but it's not clear to the hero. And on that question of uh, clarifying things and making them uh, visible, I like the way Michael speaks about these two levels as the uh, sort of the visible goals and the invisible, or the visible problem and the invisible problem. The interesting thing I've observed on this go-around of preparing for this and looking at clips and so on, is how much of the filmmaker's job is about making the invisible visible, about taking these mysterious, subtle, subtextual things and finding some way to show it to the audience. People have to be able to see the uh, symbols or the concrete expression of these inner limitations, difficulties, problems that the characters are having. And I'm going to make reference to this film, Notorious, and um, that was what I, I saw there, was that Hitchcock is a master at that, at externalizing the internal finding some way through an object or an action to show you the limitations the characters are experiencing and how they overcome it. He finds a way to physicalize things, or I say dramatize them, get them out there on the stage externally so we can see them, more than just dialogue. In fact, to Hitchcock, the dialogue was just sort of music that was going on, and uh, he he didn't really care very much about what the actors We're saying, although dialogue is often wonderful in his films, Ben Hecht wrote the script, and so there's a sort of verbal brilliance to it, but that's not really where Hitchcock lives. Okay, so we'll be looking for that as we go. Now, what I have uh, arrived at, I guess, is based on observation of scripts and working with scripts in the studio system and seeing time and time again the limitations. Often the limitations of the script are those of the writer. The writer's own psychology or limitations of their psychology is reflected in the screenplay. In other words, they can't write outside of their own box. If they have problems with women, they can't write women. If they can't be honest, the dialogue isn't truthful. Uh, If they can't face reality, then there's a kind of a phoniness about the script. And this is why they often have many people work on a script, because you just come up, a, up to a wall with a certain writer that they're never going to be able to transcend their own personality without a lot of deep work, and you don't want to go through that as a studio. <laughs> you, know, uh, you do enough shrinking of people uh, as it is. So the, the solution is often to bring somebody else in who maybe is limited in other ways, but they've got you know the door open in that particular area. So... Um, What I've tried to do is relate the inner journey to uh, this outer description that I've already given and just give you some alternate names for the stages uh, to pinpoint maybe a little more what's going on on the psychological level. But as I say, this comes out of of observation of, of real problems in developing scripts and trying to get them ready for the screen. And it's actually very simple. I mean, what I saw again and again was um, either they were doing this or they were failing to do it. You need to establish some kind of a limitation in the character's life. Show me somehow that there's something they can't do, that there is, uh, because of their inability to face their facts about their life, to... uh, to, uh, uh, bring out, as Michael calls it, this uh, essence uh, not wanting to confront that or accept that or being afraid. For whatever reason, the hero, the character, is limited in some way. Uh, they are making a mistake, is another simple way to put it. They're, they're doing something wrong. Again, often they can't see it, and they may even think it's the right thing, that they've chosen off the menu, uh, certain principles to live by, like, I must always succeed, or I must always be loved, or I must always be right. You know, and those can all be fine principles, but they may only get you so far in your life. Uh, I just to make it personal, in my own life, I lived for a very long time under uh, one prime directive, and I think everybody picks Uh, uh, one off the list that is your prime directive. I must succeed or I must uh, prove something to my father or something like this. Mine was, uh, everybody's got to be happy. Everybody around me has got to be happy. I was like the ultimate enabler. And that was fine, and it is a success strategy. It gets you to a certain point in your life. But I kept finding there was always this leftover section. At the end of every day, I had pleased everybody except me. So I realized I needed to make a character change. In the screenplay of my life, I was chronically unsatisfied. Uh, I would do everybody else's scripts, I would read everybody else's scripts, and then there wouldn't be time or energy left to write my own. So I did something that beginning screenwriters do, I created this character change, which was a very abrupt overnight change, and I suddenly turned into, you know, a monster or some kind of Hollywood shark where, um, you know, my attitude was uh, enough, of no more Mr. Nice Guy, you know? And I went overnight, when it suddenly hit me, I wasn't being satisfied in my life, I went overnight to me first, you know? And I got to be like a holy terror driving. I mean, that was the worst. That was the, it was my laboratory, you know, for experimenting with me first. And it was, you know, unhealthy to be on the road with me for a while. Although, actually, I fit in rather well with the L.A. traffic patterns. It was more normal, you know. I was out of sync before, and this put me right in sync. Um, but I found that there were limitations to that, too, and that it wasn't very good screenwriting and I had to edit my script of my life a little bit, and what I finally came up with was not me first, but at least me too, so that at least during the day, yes, I was honoring my obligations and keeping the people who needed to be kept happy, keeping them happy, but also making sure that sometime during the day I was addressing my own needs. And actually, what I found worked, the only thing that works, is to do that first the thing that's most important must be done first. And I was always putting it last, thinking I'd have time, and you never have time. It's always taken up by pleasing other people. So I made that adjustment, and it made it a little bit more sophisticated or grown-up screenwriting in my life. So this is what you're you're looking for. Some kind of initial error that the hero is making. Uh, They may be, for example, not a team player. This is a very common one in the world of Tom Cruise movies, that the guy is a star of some kind, or Richard Gere used to play this kind of character an uh, Officer and a Gentleman. They are, they are talented or blessed in some way, they're superior to a lot of other people, more handsome or more uh, adept at something, uh, but they're not team players, so they make that error And gradually, this is where the arc comes in, step by step, they begin to see the error of their ways. It's dramatized, it's physicalized, it's shown to them in the form of actual props and actions on the screen, on the stage, uh, that they can react to. And slowly it begins to sink in, and little by little, they begin to make experiments with that change. In crude, simple screenwriting, uh, in action-type pictures, uh, it may be very abrupt, and just one little scene at the end, even, uh, in, say, an Eddie Murphy picture like uh, Beverly Hills Cop, he learns a tiny little lesson about being a little more of a team player from these Beverly Hills Cops, and they learn a tiny little lesson uh, from him about being a little more streetwise. So there's some kind of exchange of energy and uh, behavior there. Uh, But it's not that important in those kind of movies, so it's done away with very quickly. In a more sophisticated style of writing, you have to do this in increments, by stages, with experiment. As Michael said, there's a lot of advancing and retreating, where you try something and you go forward into this new world, and you find, well, it's okay, but I'm a little bit nervous about this, and I'm going to go back to my safe place over here. So... um, This is is, uh, what you try to bring out in a script when you're working with someone else's script, I think. Uh, My contribution was often to help them pinpoint those places where right here is where he makes the error. So let's go back and recreate that scene again later in the script. Same conditions, maybe, but this time, because he's seen the consequences of his mistake, now he's going to experiment for the first time with making a little change and being a little more of a team player. And then often we'll retreat and you know do a little dance about it, but ultimately come to uh, a place where they can make some change. Now, we talked a little bit before about change, and uh, how this is like an almost religious article when you're in the studio system, and they're telling you, "We must have character arc, and we must have character change, and there isn't enough character growth and so forth. And there's some limited truth to all of that, uh, but Again, I want to emphasize the needs of your particular story. It may be that you're telling the kind of story where uh, it's about someone who doesn't change at all, and that's what you're trying to show, is what happens in someone's life. Maybe it's tragic, or maybe it's even somebody who sticks to their principle no matter what, and all of these Things from the culture are coming at them and from their surrounding friends and so forth are showing them, you know, you're really missing out on something by not opening up more or not being more uh, uh, inventive or experimental with your life, you're too rigid or whatever. Uh, but they stick true to their belief or their path or their character and that ends them up in a, in a certain place, maybe good, maybe bad. So it it just depends on the needs of your story. I want to liberate you from feeling you have to, uh, you know, satisfy these uh, uh, Hollywood truisms about uh, character arc and and change. Anyway, I now want to go through the 12 stages and just describe briefly. At the beginning, in what uh, I call the ordinary world, there is a sense of limited awareness. That's the word here, limited awareness. The person... Often is um, conscious of their limitations, but they don't know how to get out of it, or they're so attached to their crutch or their dependency or their coping mechanism that they can't imagine ever escaping from it. Uh, what we're talking about here, both for the audience and for the character, is consciousness. You are Attempting to raise the consciousness of your hero; otherwise, why tell a story? If somebody is just as unconscious at the beginning as they at the end as they were at the beginning, then nothing has happened. Um, and same for the audience. The audience wants to go through some kind of shift, maybe not a total 180 reversal of their belief systems, but a shift, a one degree maybe. Uh, there's something called the law of small differences, that uh, is is a truth. Uh, that, that a lot of things that we do in our lives to change ourselves are not about these drastic things where you decide to move to the outback of Australia and lose 100 pounds and, uh, you know, do all these, you know, to, and get uh, Botox and, and do everything to completely rearrange your reality. Uh, life actually is about tiny increments of change, about the 1% difference that you make in your diet or your daily writing habits or whatever. And those are the ones that generate the big change, it's, it's really out of those little tiny increments that uh, the major shifts in life happen. Anyway, we're talking about consciousness. So at the beginning, there's either no consciousness at all, that there's any problem, they're just living in a dream world, or there's a very tiny, limited awareness. Next thing that happens is this call to adventure, and that is a big, loud trumpet call that says to the hero, hey, you need a little more awareness. You need to change. Something needs to happen. Or you you at least need to address the challenge. Maybe you ultimately are not going to change, but at least you know it's on the agenda. It's being put forward on the agenda. The next thing would be the typical reaction to that challenge, which is to experience fear, express fear, uh, or show some reluctance to change. Now, we all have some resistance to change because we like things to be uh, comfortable and familiar, uh, but there's also strength in the resistance, and uh, a lot of the tension in the story comes out of the fear and the pushing back and forth and some conflict that can come out of these uh, these emotional scenes. Uh, and I said before talking about the outer journeys more, that uh, it can be uh, generated by the hero himself or herself saying, no, I... I I like things like they are. I don't want anything to change. Or they may be willing and ready at at that point in their lives where they're ready to make the big change and they just don't know how or they need help, but somebody else pops up and says, are you nuts? You can't change. I mean, no one ever changes. Nothing ever really changes. Uh, So there's some kind of uh, debate, or at least this point is made for the audience, for the sake of the audience, that this is difficult and it isn't just uh, a snap of your fingers that allows you to transform. The next stage, which is uh, on the outer journey, meeting with the mentor, is also uh, that on the inside as well, but um, another way of describing it is just to say that this is about how you overcome that resistance, and this could be uh, by asking for a mentor or seeking out a mentor, as some heroes do, or the mentor shows up. There's that phrase when the when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Uh, In my life, it's more often been, when the student is ready, the teacher disappears, and then you have to figure it out on your own, which is another way to go, and that's another uh, legitimate uh, approach. And some teachers teach that way. At the very moment when you are desperately asking them for the secret of the whole thing, they take a powder and just go, don't ask me. You know, And that itself is a kind of a message of, hey, figure it out for yourself. I had to go through it, so you have to go through the same process. So once the uh, resistance is overcome, and typically the way that this is overcome is by an action, giving something to the hero. And that's what the mentors do. And this is what distinguishes a mentor from all the other archetypes. Uh, sort of a list of the the main cast of characters, uh, Michael has brilliantly reduced it to uh, four, and he kind of you know shaved off the corners of a few of them to get them in there but uh, but it 's a nice system, and it does uh, cover all of those bases very well. I have expanded it a little and uh, have uh, you know my my uh, distinctions that I make but um, it's it's a matter of trying to figure out what is the job that that aspect of character is doing at that moment in the story. The way to look at these character archetypes or uh, uh, aspects of character is that they are masks. They are these personae that the character wears to do a certain job at a certain time in the story. For example, Shrek is has got that hero's helmet on. He looks like... From the uh, not very accurate vision of that uh, princess, I mean she can 't see his big green nose through the <laughs> visor, but uh, we we let that go um, it 's just a story uh, but the the uh, the idea is that uh, he 's performing a function then he 's performing the hero 's function, so he wears this hero 's mask, and then he also has his deeper essence and identity. but uh, this is how the thing works that at times. The hero is called upon maybe to be, for example, a mentor to someone else. So they have to take on some of the appearance or behavior or identity of the mentor. Sometimes the mentor has to show aspects of a different character. Uh, one of the archetypes is the trickster, for example, who uh, would be embodied in Shrek by the Eddie Murphy donkey character. Uh, but the trickster is the one who's always needling the hero or pointing out the hero's silliness or his flaws. Uh, making jokes to kind of cut him down to size, and sometimes the mentor wears that mask, wears that hat, and uh, so it's, it's a flexible way of looking at things. Um, but this idea of giving something is the characteristic of the mentor. Uh, in the analysis of fairy tales, there's a source I would just toss out here uh, there's a guy who was like Campbell who studied the Russian myths in some detail. Vladimir Prop was this fellow's name, and he wrote a mouthful of a book called The, uh, the Morphology of Folk Tales. And uh, he was talking about the fact that in the, the Russian fairy tales that he sampled, he saw these same character types show up again and again. And there was always a donor character, what I call the mentor who gave something to the hero. So this is a a distinguishing feature. And if you don't, if you have a mentor who's wearing the costume and embodying, say, the stereotype of a mentor, like Gandalf in uh, the Lord of the Rings, he's not really fulfilling the function unless he gives the hero something. Maybe an assignment, maybe a challenge, or maybe some magical equipment along the way. And I think in character terms and in deeper psychological terms this represents the wisdom that we all try to access when we're doing difficult things in our lives. And it may be other people that we go to as authorities or friends. It may be inner resources of your own intuition or experience uh, or or your uh, sort of uh, collective sense of things from your past. Uh, It it could be uh, books or maps that you consult, uh, but uh, it's just describing this stage of uh, what do you have to give yourself, really, to overcome that resistance? What kind of pep talks or uh, encouragement or reassurance do you need to uh, to move on? Okay, next movement, now we're at this threshold crossing point, is just that of committing to change that 's what I would call this from the inner point of view. committing to change is that moment when either voluntarily or against your will you 're in it, and uh, you are kicked or thrust, or you take the leap yourself uh, into the, uh, the this experiment in change that you 're running um, and there there is a sense of of shutting a door. Uh, of turning your back on the ordinary world and making that that crossing. So there should be some physical distinction and also some emotional costs maybe at this stage uh, for... Uh, you know, it's one thing to think about making a change, one thing to talk about making a change, and yet another thing to actually begin to make the change. So this is that point where you actually do. Uh, next stage Corresponding to test allies and enemies is simply that of experimenting. So there may be a long phase in a movie where the hero is aware now that they need to change. They've gotten some reassurance about it and some help with that, and maybe have assembled a team who are all committed to the same goal. uh, And now we begin to experiment. You begin to find out what works for you and how far you can go and how much you're ready for at this stage. Then approach is what I would call for the inner journey uh, preparing for the major change. And this, again, is a a period of rehearsing. And also there's a turning here. Uh, It's one thing to prepare yourself in your ordinary world and then turn your back on that and take that step into this special world and kind of land there. And get your bearings and look around and find out what the orientation and the polarization is of that world. Then there's another action where you sort of have to pull yourself up and go, Why am I here? And what is the big deal here? I'm in this new world to just learn about stuff or to write a particular screenplay that's going to sell or that's going to you know teach me what I need to know about life. So that is an yet another commitment. Uh, and it requires certain arrangement and preparation, so uh, if you 're going to make a big change in your in your emotional world, then there will be some uh, awareness of this is a new phase where we are beginning to uh, rehearse and prepare for that and Then the ordeal corresponds to some kind of big change in your life. Uh, it often involves the thing we 've been talking about all day the death of The mask or the persona or the ego, that's the way I look at the ego. The ego is a construction that we make for survival purposes, uh, which is our idea of ourselves and this mask that we present to the world, and that stands quite apart from the real person. And often the psychological movement or the emotional movement in the story is one of moving your center. Most people place their center right smack in their ego. What I need, what, who I am, I, 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 me, me, me. Uh, you know, and really, it's not the essence of the person, uh, and it may not allow for integration with a group. That's one of the big things that movies address, is uh, how people isolate themselves by attachment to the ego and how by giving up that attachment to the ego, you're allowed to merge with another person in a relationship, love relationship, or become part of something else by submitting or, or uh, d- depressing a little bit the drive of the ego so that that deeper stuff, the higher self, can express itself. So this might involve uh, an action, uh, possibly just putting yourself in the path of big change or actually taking out the knife yourself and killing your old idea of yourself. And when we do these uh, seminars, intense you know, weekend or week-long seminars, you see people go through this where at a certain point, maybe halfway through, they sort of go through a death. And some people bail out. And in a week-long seminar, it's not uncommon to have people say, uh, this is too much, I can't handle this, and go home. So uh, they are uh, you know, experiencing some kind of unbearable uh, death of something they're very, very attached to. Others of us like it, you know. And hey, bring it on, you know. Uh, but uh, you get a taste for it, I guess. But um, that's that's what's going on, corresponding to the the physical battles and so on that happen. Uh, maybe not simultaneously, maybe in the following scene, after a big physical confrontation where you face danger or death, then you go to the more intimate level and you open yourself up. You are more intimate, or you admit to something, or you forgive yourself, or some shift is made uh, that's triggered by the physical. That's a common pattern. Or it can go the other way. Sometimes Uh, in a story that's more driven by the emotional, you'll make the emotional change and then there'll be some uh, physical expression of that. But now that I've destroyed my ego, now I can stand up to the things I was afraid of because there's no ego there to be crushed. So I I, I can be fearless and and open and uh, stand up to my enemies in a more physical way. Okay, now that big change is seismic and it sets off waves in the rest of the story, and it leads to uh, some kind of consequences. Now, I've described this variously as seizing the sword, where you take possession of your birthright, uh, take possession of what you've earned through your uh, process, uh, or it may be a reward for having survived. And sometimes it's given externally uh, by other people who recognize your value now that you've stood up to the enemy or faced your fears. Uh, Now, you deserve to be respected or loved, uh, but it can be either... you can run in either direction. And also can run on this positive-negative line uh, and be a positive change where you get some insight or you understand your place in the world better because you've given up your ego uh, or faced death. Uh, Or it could be a negative response. It could be a negative consequence. Like, uh, I stood up and I told the truth, you know, and I stood up and testified in Congress and I told the truth, and then all of a sudden a storm of protest comes down on my head. And uh, it looks like the worst mistake I ever made, but it's what was good for your soul. So sometimes there'll be physical consequences, of having made a big emotional change, which are very upsetting and disturbing, but uh, in, in a way they're kind of a sign that you've made the right move. Uh, I, I certainly... I, there's a kind of a sense of a negative barometer about these things. When I would pitch a story in, say, Disney Animation, um, it's a brutal environment. I mean, there's blood on the walls of every meeting room there. And, um, <laughs> You know, you go in and you pitch and you're there and you're naked and you're telling your story and they just kill you, you know, and you walk away from that. And you can let it kill you or you can realize, no, I gave up my ego to do that. And the very fact that those idiots told me I was wrong must mean I was right. You know, sometimes the, the very fact that you're getting a wave of reaction is an indicator that you made the right move. But there will be consequences, and that's what that one is about, the consequences of unleashing this uh, seismic energy. Okay, now we come to the road back, and this, as Michael has pointed out, is often some kind of a setback in the story or a reversal of the uh, energy that has been going well, and now suddenly it's not going well again, or it looks like all is lost. But it does require a rededication to the effort. And that's the psychological or inner aspect, I think, that comes up, is that the hero uh, now has realized I needed to make a change. I made a big, big stab at the change. A lot of stuff happened, and it's upsetting. Some of it I can't handle. Uh, And now it really looks bad, but by golly, I'm going to stick with it no matter what. So there is that sense of uh, sometimes they're forced to it where you know, I'd like to just kind of fool around in the special world forever, or I'd like to just get out of this whole system and go home and take a nap, but in fact uh, it's best for me, for my soul, that, uh, that I commit, recommit to the adventure. So there's a sense sometimes of an emotional rededication, even in the face of a setback. And then the resurrection, stage 11, this is the biggest showdown, this is the ultimate climax, and it should have this feeling of both sacrifice, that the hero has to give up something uh, that they cherish, uh, maybe some idea about themselves, self-concept maybe, or a physical object is nice too, uh, or they have to undergo some kind of purification. And I, I mean that whatever kind of uh, bullshit idea they had carried about themselves needs to be burned away by a final ordeal. Something really, really hard has to come along that gives you a lot of resistance, and that allows you to burn away the calories and get rid of the last illusions about yourself. So a lot of the energy of stories is about cleansing people and bringing about some kind of purification through these difficult ordeals. And then the final movement, the return with the elixir, is this is a term from Camel, it's mastery. Master of the universe, master of the world. Now that you've done all this stuff, now you're entitled to stand up at the Academy Awards and say, I am king of the world. So there is a, a moment where that is appropriate. Um, but also with Camel's idea of returning with some kind of elixir and spreading it around and sacrificing and making maybe even better movies. Uh, rather than resting on your laurels. And I do believe there's a lot of that stuff that you can put into your own screenplays. So any questions about this? Do we have time for...
2: I have a question on set and payoffs.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, how much... Yeah, I recently got very involved in editing an independent film, and we found that there was a great satisfaction in landing the punches. That was the way we began to think about these setups and payoffs, that something was floated for the audience early on in the script, and then at some point we wanted to bring that one home and really make it land solidly. Uh, and, and there is a technique to this, of, of uh, calling things back at the right moment and getting that, that impact out of it without having it seem you know, too easy or obvious. This is the trick, is getting that balance.
1: The hours have sped by and the workshop has run over time, but both speakers offer some final words on how storytellers and filmmakers can become the heroes of their own journeys.
0: Well, just my last sort of uh, blessing for you all is just to put this in a perspective of what are we as writers. I always like to bring up this idea that we're part of a long tradition of storytellers, and the storytellers really were the shamans or the wise old men and women of the tribes, and they had a job to do, which was to leave their bodies, go out on these uh, vision quests, and bring something back to share with everybody else. Sometimes a song, sometimes a dance, sometimes a story, But that's our function, and it's a very important function. And the world needs your stories more than ever right now because they have a healing capacity. They have the ability to give people some frame of reference, something to compare their lives to, and maybe some answers in the mysteries of life. So uh, go out there and do your shamanic work uh, because the world certainly needs it. So blessings on you. Good luck.
2: And I have one last thought to share as well. One of the things I've come to realize is that in Hollywood movies, which I think you've probably figured out is kind of where I exist and where, what my focus is, there, the good ones really involve character arc and theme and so on, but they really all boil down to very much the same basic arcs for their character. And there are really only three that recur for characters in movies because I think they recur for all of us, and I think they're particularly American. I think they're particularly strong in this culture. And you'll see them told in different ways and developed in different ways in different movies, but they really consistently occur. And those three things are first of all, the the three arcs, the three transformations that characters need to make. The first is to stand up for who you truly are regardless of what other people think. So it is risking being who you truly are. The second thing is risking connecting with other people. Mm -hmm. Giving yourself to others. It means romantically and that kind of risk, but it means giving to others in the way Shrek needs to do for even those fairy tale creatures. Or giving to others in the way in Rain Man he gives to his brother. And the third is to stand up and do what is right. To do the moral, or in particularly in Hollywood movies, the honest thing. To stand up for the truth and say, I've got to do this because this is the right thing to do, regardless of the consequences. In thinking about this, in all these qualities which involve risk and integrity and honesty and vulnerability and passion and independence intimacy sometimes in romantic stories and sacrifice, there's really only one word that comes to mind that would encompass all of those things, and that is love. And I said earlier that I, I, I gravitate to love stories, but what I realized is all great movies are love stories. They're all about characters, and they're all about us finding the power to do that, finding the courage to do that. Now, what I would say to you is that when you say, I love movies, or I love writing, it is both a privilege but also an obligation. Because if you truly love movies and love stories, you have to risk standing up for who you are and giving that to the world and standing up for what is right with your writing. But here's the payoff. You get to wake up every day and say, "I do what I love." And that is a gift that is unsurpassed. And that is certainly what I'd wish for you. And last of all, on behalf of both of us, I would like to say thanks to you for not only being a great group, but for giving us both a chance to obviously do what we love yeah. so much. So thank you very much for coming.. Thank you Thank you Thank you very much, Thanks. Thank you. Go get. Her. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening and good writing.
0: Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.